and there will be people who will be listening to this who will immediately go, uh, well, he's crazy. Of course they're here to do us harm and everything. That's great. No, don't want to argue with you. You can believe that. Probably shouldn't buy my book. Uh, <laughs> that's fine. You're not but, helping your book sales here. This is twice now you've recommended people not buy the book. Ladies and gentlemen, As far as I can tell, there's three possibilities. They either mean us harm, and by they, I'm just going to use the term they for the advanced non-human intelligence for the yeah. rest of this interview. It could be a he, could be a she, could be an it, but I'm going to go with they. It's probably an elf. Yeah, it's probably an elf. When you first introduced me years ago, you said filmmaker and paranormal pundit, right? I think that mm -hmm. was it. I never had a desire to be a paranormal pundit. I've certainly never had a desire to be a ufologist or a paranormal expert or whatever, any of the tag. Goes I never said it. expert, just pundit. Yeah, I know you haven't. But other, people, <laughs> other people have. Yeah, yeah. It's been a long conversation. I forgot people were actually still listening to us. Yeah, no, that's true. Cream will rise to the top and everybody else's will get ignored. So, And I assume Banal of America is still sitting at the top of the coffee cup. We're still rolling along. Because you're cream. Just in case nobody got with that. <laughs> I feel obliged to explain. It's <laughs> Tim's Creamy. Wait, that sounds better. That no, sound like right. the band okay. with Eric Clapton. Exactly. And now, ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio with your host, Tim Banal. What is going on, my friends? This is Tim Benall of BenallofAmerica.com with another edition of BOA Audio Season 7. As you may have noticed over the course of the last few weeks and months, we have been bringing back a myriad of popular former BOA Audio guests talking about their latest works and catching us up on what they've been up to since we last heard from them. Well... This big marathon wraps up here this week with an epic three-hour conversation featuring the prolific and loquacious Paul Kimball discussing his book, The Other Side of Truth. I could not even begin to give you an adequate recap of what you are about to hear, but over the course of this vast conversation, we will delve into the paranormal, religion, skeptics, true believers, whether the human race is a failed species, synchronicity, the envelopment of the human race by technology, and a lengthy back and forth about the afterlife. Plus, of course, tons and tons more. There are so many side roads and tangents found within these three hours, folks. It would be impossible for me to touch on them all. Altogether, it is a conversation which spans space and time, looks at life and death, and examines aliens and elves, with longtime friend of the program, paranormal pundit extraordinaire, Paul Kimball. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Paul Kimball, please allow me to provide you with a little background on him. Paul Kimball graduated from Acadia University in 1989 with an honors degree in history and, in 1992, from Dalhousie Law School with a law degree. From 92 until 1997, Paul was a musician, songwriter, and producer 
during the heyday of the Halifax indie music scene. In late 1997, he moved to the film and television industry, working as the program administrator at the Nova Scotia Film Development Corporation and as a consultant for several provincial governments before he founded the Halifax-based production company Red Star Films in 1999. He has since had work commissioned by a wide variety of networks and distributors, including the CBC, Space, TVNZ, Vision TV, Bravo, Content Films, and B7 Media. His films include the documentaries Stanton T. Friedman is Real, Best Evidence, Top 10 UFO Sightings, Synchronicity, and Fields of Fear, the television series The Classical Now and Ghost Cases, and the feature films Eternal Kiss and Damnation. His paranormal-themed blog The Other Side of Truth has been read by over one million people since its creation in 2005, and he has appeared on a myriad of radio and television programs over the past decade to discuss his films, including Coast to Coast AM, Radio Mysterioso, Night Fright, The Paranormal Podcast, and Strange Days Indeed. He has written for various magazines, including Phenomena and Alien Worlds, and has spoken at a number of conferences in Canada, the United States, and the United Kingdom. Paul lives in his hometown of Halifax, Nova Scotia, where he continues to enjoy chocolate chip cookies, the zen of the vanilla milkshake, and slow walks to nowhere in particular. His website is www.redstarfilmtv.com. Pretty simple, all one word, redstarfilmtv.com. Check it out. And with all that said, let's get down to business and rock and roll. This interview was recorded on November 8, 2012. Paul Kimball, talking about the other side of truth on BOA Audio, Season 7. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of BOA Audio Season 7, and I'm sure what you're about to hear is going to be another epic jam session as we welcome back longtime friend of the program. Originally, I dubbed him as filmmaker and pundit, but now we can add author and publisher to the list of his accomplishments as well as a whole myriad of life stories, which actually uh, come up a lot here in his new book, The Other Side of Truth. And of course, I'm talking about the man, the myth, the legend, Paul Kimball, who has returned to BOA Audio to discuss this new book and a whole bunch of other stuff, I'm sure. So welcome back to the show, Paul. Hi, Tim. Good to be back. Always happy to be on Banal of America, which I think might have been the first podcast I ever did. Um, I'm not exactly sure, but I'm pretty sure it was many years ago. So Even I'm skeptical of that, but I'll, I'll, yeah. I guess I'll take your word for it. So. I, yeah, it was because I was busting you, um, as they say in Jersey, busting your balls about being a shameless self-promoter years ago. In a good way. It was funny. I was making, you know, it was good fun. But I had never, um, before about 2005 um, or 2006, I'd never listened to a podcast. I'd never really heard of the, I, I guess podcasts were new then anyway. So, and, but I didn't really listen to inter, um, radio either, like Coast to Coast or any of that stuff. So it was all kind of new to me. And yeah, I think you were, I think you might have been the first podcast I was ever on. Nice, nice. Now there's more podcasts than you can shake a stick at. So it's true. I've even done some some podcasts. I don't really call them. I guess they're podcasts, but yeah. I mean, everybody wants a podcast, and why not? Because the uh, the cream will rise to the top, and everybody else's will get ignored. So, and I assume Banal of America is still sitting at the top of the coffee cup. We're still rolling along because you're cream. 
just in case nobody got that, I feel obliged to explain. It's Tim's Creamy. Wait, that sounds better. That no, sound like right. the band okay. with Eric Clapton. Exactly. There you yes. go. So Yard the, birds. <laughs> the other side of truth, that's, that's the book. Uh, two questions to start things off here. What made you decide to write a book? Because when last time I talked to you, we had you on like at the beginning of the summer of uh, 2011. You, sang, you sounded pretty worn out of, of the whole paranormal scene, kind of ready to throw in the towel and, and another one of your many retirements. So now you're, you're, you're back with this, this tome, the other side of truth. So what was... Tell me about the journey from last summer to to this, and what's with the title? Uh, you already have the blog name, The Other Side of Truth. Is this like the brand, or what's up with that? Um, <laughs> Second one, I was yeah. just kind of... <laughs> but you, you must know, have... I'm going to ask you that. I mean, the blog is called The Other Side of Truth. I figured you'd come up with something crazier, like uh, Truth is the Other Side. Yeah, no. We we Canadians, we just keep plugging away at the exact same thing. So it's like maple syrup, maple syrup, maple syrup, maple syrup. Every year, same thing. We never change it to syrup of maple or or anything like that. All right. So once we once we find something, um, we just you know sort of stick with it. I'm kind of like that too. That's why the show is still called Banal of America, even though no one can understand how that has anything to do with the paranormal, but that's neither here nor there. But <laughs> I wasn't going to mention why you didn't, you know, change the title of your long running show to America's banal or, <laughs> you know, paranormal, paranormal Tim and his crazy guests or, you know, whatever you want to call it. Our America. You, you could call it coast three coast. And that would be like sort of a rap name or something. I have no idea. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I never, to answer your first question. Yeah. Which is the serious one, I presume. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> I never retired. It's impossible to retire unless you're actually in. So it would be like saying, hey, Paul, I hear you retired from your firefighting job. And I'd go, well, no, because I was never a firefighter. Not that I can recall, anyway. Uh, fire starter, maybe, when I was younger. That's a different story. Um, so I think the last time I was on, we were actually talking about beyond best evidence. That's right. It's going to be... And this is true. It was going to, it still is, uh, and I can talk a bit about or update people on that a, a little later or whenever. But it was going to be my last film uh, related to the paranormal, certainly related to the UFO thing. And it, it still is. I can't imagine ever doing another uh, film about UFOs. I still intend to do Beyond Best Evidence. Financing it has been a bit of a tricky wicket, so that's why it's not out yet. But um, but we're you know we're progressing. I think 2013. I'm pretty sure 20, given other things that are happening in the Red Star Empire on projects that are totally unrelated to anything to do with the paranormal, um, is probably going to see, hey, this is good news for you too. It's probably going to see, uh, me having enough money to finally do Beyond Best Evidence, and that'll be the filmic period at the end of the UFO sentence for me. Nice. Uh, so that's really, you know, if you're talking about retirement, and yeah, I stopped blogging, but I just got tired. This part is true. I did get tired of the whole, Internet sort of, well, it's not warfare, that's, I hate using that term because there are people who fight real wars. So, internet squabbling, that's yeah. a better word. The whole subculture, um, yeah, I get tired of that. Frankly, the, most of the people in that subculture that I was dealing with were people that, I'm sure they're lovely people, but in the, if they lived in my town, we wouldn't be friends. We wouldn't be hanging out together. So I thought, well, okay, why am I hanging out with them online <laughs> if I wouldn't hang? And they would probably say to me, yeah, we probably wouldn't hang out with Paul either. We're just different people. Yeah. And I didn't have anything left to say either. That was the other thing. I mean, at some point about UFOs in particular, just didn't have anything left to say on the blog, in that medium. 
And uh, the things that I had started talking about on the blog, um, you know, really didn't fit what the blog had sort of been about. So I thought, well, okay, I'll just stop doing this for a whole host of reasons. And okay. timing, too. It, t- it takes a lot, you know, every day, as Mac Tony's found out, as, as anybody finds out if they try and do a blog every day, if you try and do it every day, which which I had been doing for years, um, you know, it's time-consuming. Even if all you're going to do is post a link to something interesting and then make a two-sentence comment about it, you still have to find something interesting to post that link to. Exactly. So, um, yeah, I just I just figured I had, you know, a whole bunch of other things that I, I sort of would prefer to do than do that. So, you know, if people wanted to view that as retiring, sure. But I think I made clear when I put my sort of last post up on the other side of truth, the blog, that um, I wasn't, you know, not interested in the paranormal anymore, or what, you know, the broad sort of subject of the paranormal. It's just, I was much more interested in dealing with it, you know, outside the public view on a, at least on a regular basis. You know, I didn't, I never had a desire to be, it's funny, you say, when you first introduced me years ago, you said filmmaker and paranormal pundit, right? I think that mm-hmm. was it. I never had a desire to be a paranormal pundit. I've certainly never had a desire to be a ufologist or a paranormal expert or whatever, any of the tag. I never said expert, just pundit. Yeah, I know you haven't, but other people people have. Um, You know, any of these labels, I don't like labels. So I was just a guy who was interested in the subject, and because of the modern technology that allows you to blog or podcast or whatever, um, I had a place where I could stick it up, and people wanted to read it, they could read it, and if they didn't want to read it, they could not want to read it or ignore it. But that doesn't, you know, that I, I could have done. I did a blog about politics for a while too, called ironically enough, politics with an AU. So that's not really irony. That's just what is that? That's sort of pseudo cleverness. Whatever. Yeah, there's some kind of word for it. Yeah. So anyway, so that was it. But I I had always intended to write a book because um, it was kind of on my bucket list. Now whether that book was going to be about the paranormal or not, that's a different story. But uh, as it turns out, the first one that I've written, I've actually got two more in the pipeline that have nothing to do with the paranormal, so we won't talk about them. But um, uh, I'll plug those on other shows. But the other yeah. side of truth, yeah, you know, that just happened to be the first one that I did because I had some of the material was pre-existing. The chapter on ghost hunting, for instance, when I was doing ghost cases, my co-producer and I had been contracted by a local publishing company here in Nova Scotia to do a book about our experiences. Um, because my co-producer and I sort of fell out towards the end of the series, um, we didn't do the book. So I already had my portions of the book largely written. He hadn't done any of his work, hence at least one of the reasons for the following, falling out. But, yeah. so, you know, I already had that stuff sort of half half completed. So there's one chapter that I was I wasn't finished, but I had that. I had um, some thought. Some of the a lot of this material that's in the book I had either sketched out. Um, in, in a few cases, I posted on my blog in different formats, so it's clearly been edited and, and revised, and I've improved upon it. But a, a lot of it, in a rough way, was already exist, you know, existed somewhere, even if it was only in my own notes. So I said, well, okay, this will be the easiest book to write because I don't actually have to start from scratch. I can just kind of, this was my idea. I can just assemble it, basically like Nick Redfern's books. I can just assemble it and, you know, spit it out. And... Um, and then I realized, as I'm sure Nick did the first time he tried that, that you can't do that. So I wound up writing a pretty much a, a new book, but at least I had a place to start from. And um, and as far as the publishing company goes, well, that's that's a business decision. I mean, at the end of the day, 
uh, you can make money off publishing. Um, so, you know, and I have a media company with film and television, and uh, I'd always sort of thought about getting into the publishing game. And then I said, well, great, I can run my book. I'll make that the first one, see how it goes, you know, all the baby steps, learn the process, go through it all myself. Yeah. And then I can publish, you know, other people's books. So Mac Tony's, uh, the first volume of the Post-Human Blues is now out. Uh, there's a book in the works from Nick Redfern next year. Uh, Aaron Gullius, who's an American historian, a book from him. And uh, some other folks that uh, the British uh, author that'll be a fiction book. So yeah, I, the idea of publishing, you know, is um, is a lot of fun, and it's relatively easy for me to do. So so that's kind of I think that's kind of the answer to your question. A long-winded way of saying that's how the book came about. As for the title, sorry to answer your second question. Um, I, I like the title. title. You know, the other side of truth. I liked it when there was a blog title, and I I think it fits as a book title because there's the truth. That we're, I, what's the thing on the back of the book here? Why come up with anything new? I'll just read the back of the book. Um, Kimball presents the other side of truth. The world not as we have been told it is, but as we are being encouraged to imagine that it could become. And so that to me is, you know, this is about the other side of truth, which is what the paranormal is. All those things that, that, uh, that we're, we're told, it, it's not part of the regular narrative that we're fed every day about what is quote, quote, true about our world and our surroundings and ourselves even. So I give you the at least my view of what the other side of truth is. There you go. All right. Now, as I no. said, what's that? Dude, you're supposed to go deep. That's deep, man. Let me think about that. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. It's not terribly deep. I no, it is deep. Shallow. It is deep. I, I just I swim in the shallow end of the pool. <laughs> Caught me off guard there. That's all. <laughs> I have no response. It's so deep that I just want to quickly move to something else so it's not pointed out that I had no response. So you, you, you've blown up my spot there, but... No, sorry about that. <laughs> no, no, I appreciate it. <laughs> um, well, no, I mean, that's... It, 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 I can jump into that and, and raise a whole bunch of uh, observational points, but they'd be in agree- agreement. So I'd rather move on to something uh, that you wrote in the book you know, a point you make in the book that I, I want you to extrapolate on here, which is that, uh, you, you know, you, you start out sort of this anecdote, you're talking to your friend, and uh, he, he's sort of scoffing at your paranormal interest, and then you later rebut him with uh, quotes from the president where he talks about God, and it sounds almost like he's describing some paranormal, well, it is really, he's describing, you know, paranormal belief system. And then, you know, you later talk about how all these great thinkers and, and, I, I, I can't really remember exactly who the people were because they were some of them pretty obscure. Others weren't, like Lincoln and stuff, who had paranormal experiences and things like that. And I guess the I guess the what I was thinking as I'm reading this is, you know, I wonder when believing in this stuff or giving credence to this stuff, even if it's sort of like in an old wives' tale-y sort of way that maybe it was like when Lincoln was around. I mean, I don't know how the people reacted when he. Told when he told him about the the dreams that he had and stuff, but yeah, it makes me wonder when all this, when the world changed, if you will, when these things went from being maybe even just something that's casually accepted to something that's uh you know people are almost actively hostile against, which is what the case was up until hopefully in the last few years seems to be changing, but that that's a whole other kettle of fish. You know the point I'm trying to make. Yeah, I don't, and the point I was trying to make in the book is I don't think the world has changed. Um, if anything, I think the world is, and when I, I, I equate the term in the introduction, paranormal, um, I have a friend who I won't name because 
um, while he's a good guy, it would probably embarrass him. And I don't name him in the book to be sort of embarrassed or to be named. But he would regular. He's an American. He's a liberal Democrat, and he would regularly give me stick, uh, as the British say, about my interest in the paranormal. But and I knew that he was very much a uh, an Obama supporter. So I, while sitting, uh, while corresponding with him. Um, and then eventually sitting down and talking to him, he was really needling me. And I said, so, whoa, 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 whoa. Let me get this straight. Because he was really going at me about flying saucers. Yeah. And, and I said, look, you just, uh, this was back in 2008. You just voted for a guy, because I knew he'd voted for Obama. You just voted for a guy who believes in a guy, however you want to characterize it, a supernatural being who sent his only son, who might or might not, I guess, be part of him, given the Holy Trinity, um, born of a virgin birth who could walk on water, raise the dead, and turn bread to wine, sent him to earth to be executed based solely on prophecies that had been written hundreds or thousands of years beforehand, then raised him from the dead and took him off to the fairyland. A guy who believes that, you just gave, uh, you and millions of other Americans, just gave control of the nuclear box, too. And even if the other guy had won, he believes in the same thing, too. So, and you give me grief over thinking that maybe there's something to the UFO phenomenon, whether it's aliens or extra dimensionals or even a, a manifestation of, of some supernatural force, that how come I get grief for that? And he kind of, I just remember, he was like, uh, yeah, he got it, but he, he didn't get it, but he got it. He understood. And so then I kind of roll out a list of, it's not, it's not even an appeal to an authority. It's just like, look, folks, let's focus in on this. Sir Isaac Newton is, if you were to do the list of the top 10 scientists of all time, he would be in the top three. Most, I think most people would probably say Newton, you know, certainly maybe the greatest scientist of all time, definitely one of the top three. His name, they call it Newtonian physics for a reason. Well, he actually wrote more about God and faith and spirituality than he did about science. And he didn't see a contradiction between the two. He believed that they could be, they were not necessarily mutually exclusive. Uh, one of the other examples I use um, is William Lyon Mackenzie King, who was Canada's longest serving prime minister. He ran Canada for a period of about 25 years on and off between, you know, with a couple of breaks, between about 1919, sorry, 1921 and 1948. Um, he regularly consulted with mediums. Um, he, you know, Ouija boards, crystal balls, tried, he talked to the dead, or at least he thought he talked to the dead, including former prime ministers, his mother and his dead dog. He's a very strange man, but he was also a very effective leader. But he, he then I, I tried out John Buchan, the author of The 39 Steps, who later became Lord Tweedsmere. He was Governor General of Canada from 1930 to 35, close friend of Mackenzie King. He believed in reincarnation and a host of other, what we would call paranormal things. And I go down this long list throughout the book, not just in the introduction, but when I get to the chapter on reincarnation, I, I try to, you know, a, a wide range of other people. All of this is to say, nobody should be embarrassed about talking about the so-called paranormal. And it's the only, the only people that you really ever hear that from are people who so desperately want to be taken seriously by, quote, quote, science, whatever the heck science is. And by that, I think they, they, it says more about their own insecurities and whatever those insecurities are than anything else because there's nothing to be embarrassed about. You regu if you were to watch the American presidential election, every single candidate is required to proclaim their belief in a supernatural being, God. 
in fact, it has to be the Christian God. It couldn't be the Muslim God or the Jewish. Well, maybe it could be the Jewish God. But it has to be a supernatural being of some sort, no matter who it is. Okay, well, in a country, and I think that's probably true in most Western countries, um, even if perhaps in the rest of the civilized world it's not quite as overt as it is in the United States. But that should be a signpost to all of us that we live in a paranormal world. We live in a world where um, a belief in supernatural beings is not only not uncommon, but it's actually, you know, sort of the lingua franca of our society. Church membership might be down, um, and it is across the board uh, throughout the Western world. But and I'm only talking about the Western world here, because this only really comes up in the Western world. If you're traveling through India or stuff, these, this sort of anti, this this fear of being. Um, you know, thinking about the paranormal doesn't really yeah. come up. So it's really only in the Western world. And it's this conflict between, it's rooted in this conflict between, and I think it's a false conflict, between materialism and supernaturalism, spirituality, whatever you want to call it. But as I make clear in the introduction to the book, I have no interest in that conversation because it's not a conversation. You have people on two sides. You have the absolute true believers who insist that whatever their view is about anything, it could be space aliens, it could be God, it could whatever you might label supernatural or paranormal, um, it has to be that. So Roswell, the Roswell true believers, it has to be a crashed alien spacecraft. Um, you know, the fundamentalist Christians, it has to be uh, the literal Jesus Christian version as set out in the New Testament, whatever. On the other hand, or the other side of the coin, as it were, or the other side of truth, perhaps, you ah. have dis the fundamentalist disbelievers who say Roswell, I shouldn't pick on Roswell, let's just say UFOs. UFOs, all of them are explainable. There's nothing to it. Ghosts, there's nothing to it. Near-death experiences, there's nothing to it. Reincarnation, there's nothing to it. You know how we know this? Because there's nothing after this. The only world that matters is this world. Very materialistic view. If you can't touch it, if you can't see it, it doesn't exist. Well, okay, those two groups of people can continue to yell at each other uh, until the end of time. There is what, and Greg Bishop has called it um, the excluded middle years ago, and I think that's the proper term for it. There, the world is much more interesting than that. There, I believe that it's shades of gray and nuance and all that sort of stuff, and it's in the middle of those two yelling, competing and arguments or whatever. They're kind of like the old Star Trek characters. If you remember the two guys in the original series who um, uh, show up, one's chasing the other guy because he's got a black side of the left face and a white side of the right face, and the other guy has the two colors on the other sides of his face. And they can never get past, even though their planet's been destroyed, <laughs> they go down and they continue to fight. And, as, and Kirk and the rest of the Enterprise just kind of shake their heads and go, well, let's head to the next planet because, you know, what you can't do anything with those people. Well, that's sort of where I start the book by saying, I'm not here to preach. I'm not here to try and convert you. I'm not here to try and convince you that I'm right. I'm just here to lay out a series of experiences that I've had, some ideas that I've had about what those experiences might be, and then, frankly, I make no bones about it, some rank speculation off the top of my head about what I think all of this might mean. Um, and I might very well be wrong. I probably am. But I'm trying to stimulate you, whoever's reading this book, to think. And if you come up with different ideas than I do, then that's great. Uh, if you disagree with me, absolutely fine. And uh, we can have a conversation about that, the kind of conversation I would have with Greg or Mac Tony's when he was alive or Nick Redfern or, or you. I don't want to have an argument. 
I don't want people yelling. I don't want people saying you're wrong or I'm right or whatever, because I don't think any of us know that. But the one thing that I, the point that I desperately want to make with all of this is it's time for anybody who's interested in the paranormal or the supernatural or whatever you want to call it, spirituality, to just not be embarrassed by it. There's 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 no laughter curtain, as Stan used to say. Stan Friedman would always say. I mean, he fed into that too by kind of you know in every lecture saying, "I, I understand there's a laughter curtain." So, no, Stan, there isn't a laughter curtain. It's you're afraid of what certain people within your old profession, science, um, physics, whatever, are going to think of you. But you shouldn't be, and you need to look at this in a more holistic way. So there's no there's no laughter curtain. There's nothing to be afraid of. We can have these conversations. Because we do it every day. Our president, well, your president, he's not my president. Well, you're in Imperial America, so he's kind of everyone's president. He really is uh, Canada's president, let's be honest. Yeah, he, but, there, you, know. you guys rule the world with an iron fist, so he's everyone's president. Well, maybe just Canada, uh, because you're so close and everything. So you're forced, you're sort of like the, the best friend who's forced to go along with our schemes. Yeah, except for the best friend part. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, of course. They're not really best friends. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We're just—it's like the best friend who's not. It's like Polly from the or whatever from the Sopranos. Yeah, hey, yeah, I'm your best friend, right? And then, you know, you're you're really secretly plotting the ice. We're going to poison your water supply or something one of these days because um, you get most of it from us. So you know, that's what the other side of truth is about. That was the point I was trying to make, uh, and I wrote everything with that clearly in mind, which is to say, look, I'm not here to argue. If you don't agree with me, that's fine. No problem. I just hope I stimulate, like Mac used to do with his blog, or like Nick does, or Greg does. I just want to stimulate some ideas. And I'm not going to be afraid to throw stuff at the wall and see if it sticks. And see, because it's a conversation I'm having with myself. So I'm just going to do it in public in the form of this book. And if people take something out of it that's good, great. And if they don't, well, I have their $15, so great, too. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this is the rare case where, you know, something you do in private that you want to share with everyone out in public is an okay thing to do, so. Yes, I've I've been told that there are other things that I probably shouldn't share. Well, you you make a bunch of points there, and they're interesting, Um, you know. But I guess I see your point of view that, there is no laughter curtain in a sort of a, a sociological sense, almost a meta sense, if you will. But there's also there is a there is a laughter curtain when you're dealing with people like your friend. So you know, it's the question is, I guess you know, when did it, when this guy who was the prime minister of Canada was channeling uh, dead people and stuff like that was it was it like known at the time, or did we just find out about it later? No, it was known within certain circles at the time, but it was a different era. So it was like Kennedy's mistresses. It generally right, wasn't right. publicly known because people lived, you know, uh, long for these days. They lived a more private life back then. But I, I refer more to things like, look, the James Randi Foundation. I, I often hear people who are, and used to read people because I don't really read their, their forms anymore. Um, on the paranormal side, shall we call it, the true believer side, they would bemoan the James Randi form. And similarly, the people on the James Randi form would use terms like woo meisters and everything too. These are the two extremes that I'm talking about. Right. And so I can't really talk. Let me talk to both of them. To the people in the James Randi group, and I did a lecture at HalCon, which is a big science fiction convention up here in Halifax last year, and there were a couple of Randi fans in the audience. And I was talking about ghost cases and talking about the various um, experiences from my ghost, quote, quote, hunting days on television. 
And they were very polite, but afterwards they came up and they started, they weren't berating me, but they were just saying, look, that's not possible here. James Randi said this and, you know, skeptics said this. And I said, look, if you don't believe this is possible, if you don't believe there's anything to it, why are you so worked up about it? And by implication, why is James Randi so worked up about it? Why is any, if you don't believe it, right? then what do you care what other people believe? Because they're not doing any harm. It's not like there's this sort of jihad of ghost hunters that is out there trying to forcibly, like, you know, 7th century Islam, convert everybody in their path to believing that ghosts are around and they're the great, you know, the spirits of your great-grandmother. Right, right. It's, it's, it's akin almost, uh, not exactly, but it's like it's like the people that, you know, who are like, who are like, you know that wrestling shit's fake. It's like, yeah, yeah it's like you watch that fake shit. It's like, you know it is. So who, you like, why do you need to be always being a dick? <laughs> exactly. But I would flip it around too, and I would say to the people who believe that wrestling is real or like watching it, or to the people who think that the paranormal is important or whatever, why do you care? Why do you? Why would you ever write a single word of rebuttal to somebody at the James Randi form or care what James Randi thinks about you? Because it doesn't matter, does it? The same way that what you think shouldn't really matter to them, they should just get on with their lives, it shouldn't matter to you, because neither one of you is really, you know, it's not, neither of you are, you know, are going to be able to influence, like, what are you trying to do, convince people or something, is this, or are you, and if you are, then then you kind of are a jihadist of belief, whatever your belief or disbelief is. But if you're an actual searcher for the truth, which to me is a very personal journey, like I said, I'm not out to convince anybody of anything. Really, if they can take something out of my own experiences, great. If they can't, then I encourage them to have their own experiences. But I really do believe, and this is a point I, I make um, very early on in the book, too, that this is a personal journey. All of this, this looking for the paranormal or the supernatural or the spiritual or whatever you want to call it, it's a very existential thing, and it all comes back to trying to figure out what our place as individuals, but also as a species, if you will, is in this great big universe. and why you would waste any time arguing with people who are diametrically opposed to you. I just, I honestly just don't understand that. Um, and I used to do it to a lesser extent than I think people on the extremes used to do, but I used to sort of rail against the likes of Stephen Greer and um, uh, Bud Hopkins, whose um, research I disagreed with. Conversely, I used to rail against the likes of the diehard disbelievers. I would say, look, science should take this seriously. UFOs. I was talking mostly about UFOs then. Science should take UFOs seriously. I don't care anymore whether, quote, quote, science takes UFOs seriously. Because, first of all, what is science? Stan Friedman wrote a book, co-wrote a book with um, Kathleen Martin called Science Was Wrong. Worst title of a book ever. Because it really should be scientists were wrong, meaning individual scientists. That scientist was wrong about this. That scientist was wrong about that. That group of scientists was wrong. But science isn't a thing. It's not like Cthulhu. It's not this sort of great giant creature that floats over our heads and can order the world. Or can it's a, it's a process. The scientific method has never been wrong. The scientific method eventually is always right. It might it might take hundreds or thousands of years, but eventually the idea of um, experimenting and trying to find out the truth using the scientific method, for the things that the scientific method can give you the truth to, it's going to prove out to be right. And in Stan's book, that's the point that he inadvertently 
winds up making because he says that scientist was wrong. And eventually we knew that because here's the truth. Well, who discovered the actual truth? Another scientist. So it's not that science was wrong. It was just that guy was wrong. Anyway. I think he had a different title in mind anyway, honestly. Uh, I heard him on Coast to Coast. He said that, or one of the shows, maybe it was even my show. (laughs) Um, Yeah. But they, they tried to pattern it after some Von Daniken book that came out earlier. So. I'm not trying to pick on Steve. No, 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 I know. I just, I, you know. I am picking on that one book because I really hated the title, and it's it's a completely misleading title. Right, but, uh, you know, with regards to the title, to add the footnote in, I've heard him say that the publishing company that wanted the title because of some other previous book, the history was then, wrong, was the previous book by someone else. Then, fair enough. Then blame the publishing company, and that's just uh, just as bad, I suppose. That's the great thing about owning my own publishing company. I get to choose my own titles and live or die with them. So I, I never am in a situation where I can blame somebody else for screwing up my book. But are you going to force the titles on the authors, though, which is what we're saying happened no. here? Yeah, well, I got news for you. Every author has the ability to walk. This is totally, like, we're taking a little detour here, but every author yeah. has the ability to walk away from a publishing deal if they want to. You, it's not slavery. And if you're smart, and again, I'm not a fan, fan, but Stan's a smart guy who's dealt with the media for 40 years in all its facets. He's been published before. He's been on television and radio. So Stan's not like some guy who just fell off the turnip truck. Stan made a decision to allow the publisher to come up with that title. He could have, he could have, there are many, many different ways that you can get out of something like that if it really ticks you off. So to hear Stan kind of backtrack and say, well, I didn't want that title. Well, yeah, but, you didn't actually jump up and down and say that's a deal breaker either, did you? So it couldn't have been like you were that against it. So, so you know, a lot of people will allow publishers or record companies or television networks or whatever to dictate to them um, various things, and then that's a choice that you make. But you always have another choice, which is to walk away, to self-publish if you want, or to find another publisher. So, you know, we live in a world of choices, and everybody makes a choice. So, But th- back to the title. Science isn't this monolithic thing. So we shouldn't really worry about what science thinks about us, science. We shouldn't worry about what scientists think about us. And when I say us, I mean anybody who has an interest in the paranormal. You should just worry about what you think of yourself, which is to say, hey, deal with your own stuff. Talk to your friends if they – like my friend in the beginning of the book, the Obama thing that we were talking about – he still doesn't believe in the paranormal, and by believe, I mean he does not even interest it. He just doesn't give me any grief about it anymore because he, you know, I used that example with him, and he he took the example. He said, you know what? All right, fair enough. You're right. If I'm going to give you grief, then I kind of have to write a letter to the president and give him grief about talking about God all the time, and I don't want to do that, so I'll just shut up about it. I said, yeah, you shouldn't do that. Yeah, you probably shouldn't write letters to the president complaining about anything. Exactly. That's how people, that's how people disappear. <laughs> um, but so, you know, why, do, why anybody, and we're, you know, we've gone on a lot about this, but this is kind of the core of the book before you get into any of the stories or anything. It's just like, leave all that aside. That's baggage. It has nothing to do with, and yet so many people who are interested in the subject get drawn into this whirlpool, this never-ending conflict with the, trying to convince people on the Randy forums or God knows wherever, or whining about it or calling them skeptic bunkers and all that kind of stuff. And you are no better than they are. Um, when they call you a woo-meister, that's bad. When you call them a skeptic bunker, that's bad. Labeling people is bad, but also just arguing with them is bad because it's counterproductive. It's unproductive. So the more important thing should be, hey, let's just ignore them. On both sides, I would say, ignore these other people unless they're doing, you know, appreciable harm and get on with your own life and what interests you. 
So I can't speak for what interests the people on the Randy form. I have no idea. <laughs> but I, I do have some idea of what interests people who are interested in the paranormal, because I'm one of them. And that should be an exploration of, of what it might all mean. So just that's what you should focus on, folks. And the book kind of makes that point. And then it goes on to make a whole bunch of other observations that don't involve that. But that's the ground floor that it starts on. There you so, go. Yeah. You'll edit that down, right? Why? You didn't like it? <laughs> no, it's just, it's really long-winded. No, 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 it's good. It's good. Don't worry no, about it. No, no, it's fine. I'm, I, I remember last time you were like, oh, you, you didn't say anything the whole time. I'm, I'm trying to say more shit, but I also don't want to fucking interrupt you, so. No, no, interrupt away. Anyway. Oh, well, you asked for it. Well, the other big question. thesis of the book, uh, one of the big theses, if, if you will, uh, is, I just wanted to make a feces joke, that's all. But, uh, no. <laughs> just gonna let that one go. Thank you, thank you. Uh, no pun intended, I hope. Anyway, so, the... <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, touche, my friend, touche. Indeed. Um, one of the big, uh, sort of central themes of the book here, uh, that comes up at the beginning and then throughout and then a lot at the end too is, uh, the sort of idea, and it's, it, I mean, I, I'm hesitant to even go there because you've made me Gun shy about about letting you go on a on a rant, but I'm gonna I'm gonna stay focused here on this because that's that's what I think is something that could really be fleshed out and taken out of the book uh, that I think people would be really wrap their mind around, and that's this idea that the paranormal may be some form of art as performed by a higher intelligence beyond ours. Whatever's behind, you know, the higher intelligence sort of is an umbrella term for, you know all the different caricatures that people stick into as the source of, of paranormal activity. So, you know, aliens, elves, demons, angels, all that shit. That's the higher intelligence. Uh, There's a lot about you that the second choice was elves. <laughs> no, I'm just going to leave that one for people to figure out on their own what that might mean, but Tim's second choice, elves. <laughs> they just seem untrustworthy. Uh, I've, I've always thought so. <laughs> So, and that's one of the big themes of the book, and that is that, you know, the paranormal may be this, and art itself is, and I have it here in my notes, art in scare quotes, you know, because art is such a nebulous term. It can be all kinds of things, you know. There's performance art, there's paintings, there's music, you right. know. There's all kind art, in a, it's like, what is art, you know. So that that's such a nebulous term, but I think you capture something in, in by saying that. You know, it's like that, that maybe that they're doing it for some reason that, you know, isn't as cut and dry maybe as people want to think. They're not coming here to create a hybrid race because their planet's dying and they're, you know, they're not, I don't know, on a mission no. from some evil being that wants to ruin the human race or I'm just trying to come up with like the, what the ascribed motivations of these, these things are. So, yeah. Sure. I'll, I'll come back to the art thing in a second because I will answer your question. Um, what is art, which I think you were just tossing out in the middle of a sentence. But actually, I think that's a fundamental question, and I, I will answer that. But the first thing I want to say is there's three possibilities. I make the assumption, without saying that it's absolutely true, but I say, look, for the purpose of discussion of this book, right up front, I'm going to assume that we're interacting in some way with an advanced non-human intelligence. I'm not going to tell you what that intel. It could be aliens from Zeta Reticuli. It could be extra-dimensional beings. It could be what we've traditionally called God. It could be any. It could. It could be our own subconscious. I have no idea what it is. All I know is that 
for the purpose of discussion, I'm going to assume, based on my own experiences, based on what I, what I have come to tend to believe, without saying I absolutely believe it, you know, otherwise it's a pretty short book if I don't make that assumption. Anyway, it's like, hey, thanks for reading pages one through six, and goodbye. Um, here's a 300-page bibliography. So, <laughs> so when you make that assumption, and I say, if you don't buy into that assumption, don't buy the book. Because you're probably going to be sorely disappointed. Right. That's what I like about the book. Let me just jump in and interrupt you there. That, that, that's what I like about the book. And we kind of talked about this earlier here in the conversation. But it's sort of like you leave, you leave a lot of the bullshit at the door, which is good for people like me and the advanced audience, like the people who listen to this show, who are like, you know, we don't need to spend 25 minutes getting over, getting you to explain why, what you just said. You know what I mean? It's like we're coming, we're coming in with the assumption that this is what's going on. So we don't need to spend a whole bunch of time dealing with that. Right. Well, I don't think any – because all you would be doing would be trotting out a number of um, – I mean, and, and I do – I mean, here's a, the streets of Ch- – or the shadows of Chesky Krumlov, my experience with cha- so-called – whatever the shadow – I'll just call them shadows. You know, my ghost hunting cases, a couple of UFO cases pop up, including the RB-47 case. But they pop up not simply as a – a recital of cases to prove the point that ghosts are real and your dead grandmother. They're all within the context of using this, um, of examining the paranormal in general as kind of, let's call it this art, this cosmic art project, as Greg Bishop would say. I think he coined the term the cosmic art project. So, so yeah, I start with that assumption. And then when you start with that assumption, you sort of say, well, okay, there's three, as far as I can tell, there's three possibilities. They either mean us harm and by they, I'm just going to use the term they for the advanced non-human intelligence for the yeah. rest of this interview. Could be a he, could be a she, could be an it, but I'm going to go with they. It's probably an elf. Yeah, it's probably an elf. Or, a, or you know, maybe a cobalt, which is going D&D meta there. Yeah, I don't know what that is. Oh, well, you clearly never played Dungeons & Dragons. They're little <laughs> dog-like creatures. Anyway, okay. anyway, yeah. They bark a lot. So they would either mean us harm. They would be um, largely, you know, just kind of as Michio Kaku, and I talk about a conversation I had with Kaku at a lecture once where he says they're so far in advance that we're like ants to their humans, meaning they don't really care one way or another. They don't even really perhaps notice we're here. Mm-hmm. Or they are actually trying to communicate some form of a positive message. and using positive and quotation marks just to say something that would be beneficial to us because if they're not here to do us harm and they're not here to just, you know, they're just kind of ignoring us, then the only option left is, well, something about what they're doing has a purpose and it is in some way beneficial. At least in their eyes, it would be beneficial. Fine. So I immediately reject the first option, which is that they're here to do us harm because if they were here to do us harm or if they did exist to do us harm, they would have done it by now. If Let's assume, let's talk about space aliens. If space aliens from the planet Xenon showed up here, you know, these movies like Independence Day and Battle, what was it, Battle of Los Angeles or whatever that one was, I mean, they're, they're fun to watch, I guess, because stuff blows up good. But the idea that the United States Air Force could somehow combat legions of space aliens who've managed to fly here from other star systems and defeat them is ludicrous on its face. Uh, Cortez, and I sort of point this out in a footnote, Cortez and a merry little band of Spanish rapists, pillage and, pillagers, and plunderers, otherwise known as the conquistadors, conquered an entire empire of less technologically advanced people without a whole lot of effort. And they did it using a couple of different things, namely guns and disease. Doesn't matter how they did it, they did it. Uh, you could, I use another example, just a hundred years. Take the Battle of Trafalgar in 1805, which was 
um, the height of British, wasn't the height of British naval supremacy, but it began the Pax Britannica of the 19th century. The British defeat the French and combined French and Spanish fleets um, off the coast of Spain at Trafalgar. Great. So you travel a hundred, just a hundred years forward to 19, a little over a hundred, call it 109 years, to 1914 at the beginning of the Second World War. Let's call it 111 years. 1916, Battle of Jutland. That's the next super battle that the British fought, this time against the Germans in the First World War, with dreadnoughts and giant metal battleships and 18-inch cannons. If you had taken one of those dreadnoughts and could somehow travel back in time to 1805, that one dreadnought could lay waste to the combined British, French, and Spanish fleets that were the height of naval prowess at Trafalgar. That's only 100 years, technologically. Now, 1916, travel just 40 years into the future. 1956, one nuclear-powered submarine with one nuclear weapon, one atomic weapon, could have fired it off at the combined British and German fleets at Jutland, which were the height of naval power in 1916, and could have obliterated them with just one bomb. And the sailors who would have been on the ships that would have seen the bright flash of light coming on the horizon that was soon to engulf and destroy them would have had no idea where it came from. Unlike the sailors at Trafalgar, who at least might have recognized a dreadnought as a battleship, just some crazily advanced, going-to-kill-us-all battleship, right. the sailors at Jutland with the atomic weapons would have had no idea what was happening to them because they wouldn't have seen where it had come from. It had been fired from a submarine. It just would have exploded in their midst and destroyed all of them. That's So when we talk about space aliens coming here, let's, you know, assuming they're even just 100 years more advanced than us, you have to put that in perspective of the kind of technology that we would be dealing with and the ability that they would have to completely and utterly destroy us if they wanted to. In the same way that if you could somehow take a submarine from 1956 back to 1805 or even 1916, they could completely and utterly destroy the most advanced navies that the world would have had at that time. So for that reason, and I go into in, in places in the book, I point these things out and I say, look, I just reject out of hand that they are here or they are interacting with us to do us harm, because if they wanted to, they would have by now. And they could, and there'd be nothing we could ever do to stop them. Right. But no, we, I just, well, you can't out of hand dismiss it, because what about the idea that they're harvesting us? Yeah, well, I do out of hand dismiss it, because there's no reason for them to harvest us in secret. They could literally I come down, there's no... You have to look at these things logically and ask yourself the question, why would anybody do this? And there's no logical reason why they would have to do it in secret. They could overwhelm whatever defenses we have in, um, you know, 10 minutes. And then they could basically set up farms if they wanted to harvest us. Harvest us. They could say, you're all our slave people now, like the whole, um, what was the L. Ron Hubbard film with John Travolta, Battlefield Earth or whatever. Yeah, you know, yeah. Well, maybe, they want, maybe they want free-range humans. Great, they could do that too. Uh, I just, I, I, I don't know. These, these are people, people who think. I'm not pointing a finger at you, but people who. No, no, that's fine. I'm, I'm just presenting an argument. I'm not saying that's what I believe in. I'm just saying that, that, that I just, you know, yeah, let's look at all the possibilities here. Then, if we're going to dismiss something out of hand. Right. I have looked at all the possibilities, and I reject it out of hand They're, because it doesn't make any sense. It makes absolute no, absolutely no sense that they would be here to do us harm, and they haven't actually done it because they have the ability to do it. So, then that leaves me with two options. And there will be people who will be listening to this who will immediately go, uh, well, he's crazy, of course they're here to do us harm and everything. That's great. Not, don't want to argue with you. You can believe that. 
probably shouldn't buy my book. Uh, that's fine. You're not but, helping your book sales here. This is twice now you've recommended people not buy the book. So yeah, people buy the book but, if you if you if you find this interesting. Well, if you find it interesting and you disagree with me, that's fine. But you know, I'm just telling you up front. <laughs> I re- I reject it because it makes absolutely no sense. Looking at the what's been going on, the the middle ground, which is the Kaku thing, where he says they're like um, uh, humans to our ants. They're but it makes sense. Doesn't make sense to me either because there seems to be a clear interaction. There seems to be a purpose behind a lot of what has been going on. Um, whether you look at ghost phenomenon, and from my own personal experience, uh, I had things, and by things I don't mean creatures, I just mean events, where something seemed to be at least clearly interacting, um, and it wasn't just sort of a random occurrence. Uh, and I, you know, you can trot out case after case of UFO cases or ghost cases or any a whole range of, you know, God appearing to G- Paul or Saul as he was then on the road to Damascus, whatever. Uh, I talk about Henry Allen, a 18th century Canadian evangelist who had a very profound, he phrased it in a spiritual um, experience, but it, you know, if he was to have it today, he'd probably be on the lecture circuit at UFO conferences or something where he, he had this very profound experience with a, what I would call an advanced non-human intelligence. But because of when he was living, he called it God and went off and became an evangelist and a very good one. So they seem to be interacting with us. Now, I've rejected the idea for the reasons that I've set out because I believe they could you know, overwhelm us and destroy us if they really wanted to do us harm. Um, I reject the idea that they're just, you know, they exist, we exist, and it it doesn't really, they're not trying to interact with us. So that leaves, re, you know, process of elimination. That just leaves one possible alternative, to me anyway, which was the one I chose to explore, which is the idea that they're actually trying to communicate some message to us that might actually be beneficial to us. Now, that comes back to your question of what is art? Art is, in all of its manifestations, a form of communication. To me, it's the sort of ultimate form of communication. But whether it's music or performance art or dance or painting, the artist, and I can say this having been one uh, as a musician, as a filmmaker, you're always trying to communicate something. Even if that what you're trying to communicate is you know, three chords and the truth in a punk rock song, um, even if it's just a feeling, um, which musicians are often trying to communicate. Uh, classical musicians, for instance, if you were listening to a Beethoven symphony or a, a concerto or something, uh, there's no words, but the music itself, there's a there's a purpose, there's a, there's a structure to the music. Bach, if you listen to Bach in particular, it's it's mathematical almost in its structure, but it's designed to communicate, if nothing else, emotions to you. My musician friends, and I learned this from them when I was doing two seasons of a classical music series here in Canada for Bravo called The Classical Now, they would always talk about it as colors. They referred to it, not all of them, but when they would, a lot of them would refer to it as the color of the music, because that was the um, dealing with music that didn't actually have words attached to it. That was the sort of the best way that they could try and put it into words. Well, it's kind of like colors. So you know, this is kind of red, and then blue and green, and moods would have. I, I, if I was them, I might use moods or emotions, but it all meant the same thing. And so the music's designed to communicate. A painting is designed to communicate. Now, here's the interesting question. You could walk into the Getty Center in Los Angeles, stand in front of, which is an art gallery, stand in front of a painting, I've done this, with a friend or a relative standing next to you, look at the exact same painting, the two of you, and both of you pull something different out of it. A little harder to do if you're looking at a pastoral painting of, um, you know, a, a sort of more realistic representation of life, but even there, 
there are nuances. But if you're looking at an abstract painting, uh, Jackson Pollock or something, for instance, uh, or a Dolly or a Picasso, well, the doors to perception are wide open then. So you could walk out of that room and say, hey, what did that look like to you? <laughs> and, you know, look like a cow. What did it look like to you? Um, Satan? And, you know, <laughs> whatever. You know, two, you could have two com- completely competing sort of interpretations. And then, here's the interesting thing. What does that do? Well, if you're, you know, if you're interesting people and you're, you'll sort of take this stuff seriously and find it interesting, you'd start having a conversation. The conversation would be, well, okay, what, where do you get the cow from? Um, and okay, and okay, where do you get Satan from? Oh, I kind of see that. I, you know, I'm not sure I agree, but so art in all of its manifestations, I think, is designed to communicate. What it communicates depends on the person, usually on the other end, but it's also through that communication designed to make them think, designed to make them question, designed to make them communicate with other people about what they've experienced, what they've seen, what they've listened to, and. That is the ultimate. I, I think somewhere in the book I, I write that you know the artist is is the sort of apotheosis of the human sort of condition or whatever, in the sense that they're the ones who, not politicians. Everybody is does valuable things in our world. Whether you're a ditch digger, a politician, a construction worker, a police officer, it's all very valuable. But the ones who make, to me, the most lasting contributions that transcend time and place that we remember and that don't, generally speaking, do any harm, like world-conquering you know, dictators, yeah. Napoleon and Hitler, are artists. So long after um, most people have forgotten anybody who lived in Bach's time, we still remember Bach, we still remember Beethoven, we still remember Sophocles and Aeschylus, the great playwrights of the Greeks. Um, we still read them in many cases. Philosophy is a form of art, so we still remember Plato and Aristotle. And, you know, I, you can go down the list. And in a thousand years, people will still, re- if we're still around, they'll still remember Paul McCartney in some way, shape, or form. So, and we still look at the paintings and all that sort of, of great artists. So, yeah, I view the paranormal. Then we get into, so that's my answer of what is art. That's my answer of what I think the, um, the advanced non-human intelligence is trying to do to us, trying to communicate. Mm-hmm. And so I meld the two and I say, well, look, it's a really a form of art. In, ma- in many different manifestations. And I kind of use some examples of, in the ghost chapter, I, I try and use examples that sort of, it's a little tongue-in-cheek that makes sense. So I tell a story about um, my own experience at a haunted house once when I was a little kid. And then that leads into the, the chapter on um, on ghosts. And I, I, you know, how fear is a powerful sort of motivator to make us feel alive, to make us question who we are and what's going on around us. Now, I'm not talking about the fear of running from bullets on a battlefield. That's a totally different kind of fear. I'm talking about the fear that we willingly submit ourselves to in the entertainment industry. So you, I don't tell this in the book, but it's one of my favorite examples to tell. When the Blair Witch Project came out, first of all, anyone who tells you they saw the Blair Witch Project and wasn't scared is probably lying. Um, it's like all the people in France after the Second World War who claimed to have been in the resistance. <laughs> um, most of them weren't. Uh, in fact, a lot of them were collaborators, but nobody wanted to admit that because you'd be, you know, strung up. So far more people claimed to be in the resistance than actually were ever in the resistance. Same thing is true with the Blair Witch Project. Far more people claimed to not have been scared than actually were not scared. Because the truth is, if you sat in that theater and you didn't know what was coming, and as, as I did, I was in a packed house when it was released theatrically, everybody in that theater was scared. 
Now, in hindsight, you look back, you go, well, okay, the movie actually wasn't all that good. And if you really think about it, it's, oh, it's not all that scary. But it was the sort of reveal. It was, it was cleverly put together to elicit that kind of emotion. But we all knew that going in. People go in, they went in to watch Paranormal Activity, the first one, knowing it was going to be scary. They watched the Saw movies, which boggles my mind. But knowing that they're going in to be scared. Yeah, but those are creepy. Those are like, you get gross out movies almost, those movies now. Right. Well, I agree, but there's still that element. I I don't know why kids are scared, want to be scared by that kind of stuff as opposed to um, what I would consider truly scary stuff, like, say, The Exorcist, which is much, but that's my, that's a generational thing. That's Mm. fine. At the end of the day, it's all about being scared and all about the fact that we are willing to subject ourselves to that experience because we enjoy it. And I think it, because it sort of makes us feel alive, I think it actually makes you think, especially if you go see a movie like The Exorcist as opposed to Saw 3 or something. But whatever. So fear is a, fear is, weirdly enough, fear is something we shouldn't be afraid of, if you get what I'm saying, because it's a, it's a tool of communication. It's something, it's part of our emotional toolbox and our emotional makeup. And so I can, I can understand why advanced non-human intelligence would want to interact with us in the form, you know, at fear, to scare us, the haunted house idea, because we do it ourselves. Filmmakers, David Cronenberg, good example. I use a quote from him in the book. You know, Cronenberg has made his career on scaring people, but he does it in, in an intelligent way that makes them think. And I, I actually, I think the ghost sort of phenomenon, which, believe me, having been there, I, I find it I, many different. I talk about it a couple times in the books. No, I make no apologies for it. I was scared. I sort of fled the haunted basement or whatever. Um, I was definitely scared in Chesky Krumlov when I was being um, stalked by shadow people or however you want to put it. So I talk about some of these scary experiences, but I don't view it as a negative. Um, now, I might have viewed it as a negative at the time, but in hindsight, I kind of view it as a positive. And that the same thing is true of all these other things. I talk about puzzles. Puzzles are a form of art. So when I'm talking about synchronicity, I read a chapter about synchronicity. Um, you know, I, I start off by talking about uh, puzzles in the form of films, films like The Sixth Sense or Inception, where it's kind of a puzzle that the filmmaker leads you on and you sort of have to figure it out. We're attracted to that because it makes us think. My mother's a big fan of Sudoku. I, I can't master Sudoku to save my life, but she likes it. Um, it's a puzzle. We're fascinated by those kind of things that we have to solve. Mysteries, same thing. So to me, synchronicity is a puzzle. It's a mystery. It's, it's, and I kind of frame it in that context. And the answer that we get out of it is, I think, different for every individual. But again, it's designed to me, and this is the thesis, I guess thesis, I'll use that word that I advance, is that it's designed to make us think, it's designed to make us question about ourselves, the world around us, our interaction with others, all that sort of stuff. But that's what art does. So I view the paranormal, yes, as an art project and all of its manifestations. So lights in the sky, take UFOs, for instance. Well, we do that too. Fireworks, go to the Burning Man Festival, the 4th of July, you can see lights in the sky. Go to Prague in the Czech Republic, you can see Black Light Theater. Go to a Cirque du Soleil show. And a lot of it has to do with lights and uh, and that sort of thing. Even a, even a U2 show, for instance, yes, it's music, but the music is heavily synced to this massive light show. I know, I saw them in Montreal a few years ago. And at some points, you know, the, the light show is even more impressive than the musical show. So, you know, we use lights to communicate with ourselves as, as a form of artistic expression. Now, let, so me, would, let me jump in, because i got a couple... Sure. Jump away, because I have been rambling. It's yet. all right. No, no, don't... Please. 
but it's in all of America. We encourage the ramble. We're a rambling. Time at the rambling Jaguars, so. so Stop watching. Ta- I don't see how you can ramble and also be distracted by television. It should be the opposite. You should have less to say. It's bizarre. Um, I don't discount the idea of this art project uh, thesis. Certainly don't uh, discount it, and I think it's an interesting thought exercise. But what about the two other possibilities here that may be going on? Um, and then you may include them under the umbrella of art, where it's, there's a study going on, possibly, by this higher intelligence to see our reaction, which may, in fact, I guess you could almost kind of classify it as art in a weird sort of way. I mean, is, is, is a study art? Sometimes it could be. It could be very artistic. That, and also mistranslation, if you will. It's almost like if you ran into someone who spoke a completely foreign language and they were trying to talk to you and you couldn't just, we just cannot understand what they're trying to say. Like maybe that could apply to the ghosts part and the study part could apply to the, to the ETs, if you will. Have you, I'm sure you've sort of run these through the, through your models, I guess you could say, about the hypothesis. So I mean, what do you think? I, I hang out with an entirely different type of model, Tim, so <laughs> I, never, I never run stuff like this through them. Um, You're going to the wrong fashion shows. Yeah, that works on several different levels. I'm just kidding. Sure, those are possibilities. Um, maybe my next book will be The Other Side of Truth. Uh, the lab experiment, the art of the imagination and the human condition, I don't know. Um, sure, they, you know, it could be something like that. It's not how I see it, but because I see it one way doesn't mean that it couldn't be something else. Like I said at the very beginning, this is just me going down this road, this sort of thought experiment road, and saying when I look at all of this, and it's probably because I am an artist, I see it as a form of communication. Uh, I see it, the way that they would communicate to us would be in terms that we could understand. Um, I do kind of talk about this in the book. I do not think, kind of like a parent to a kid, you know, the, the parent shouldn't at least, they don't, but maybe they do, but they shouldn't be doing the kid's homework. What the parent should do is encourage the kid to do his own homework. Maybe help a little, you know, but basically just make sure you do it and get them to school on time and all that sort of, to use a very sort of banal, as opposed to banal example. Um, And, you know, I think maybe that's what the advanced non-human intelligence is doing. I mean, a good songwriter, for instance, there's two ways you can convey a message I know you'll like this. Follow with me here. Mm-hmm. There's two ways you can convey a message. You can literally write your lyrics and say, um, X is Y, X is Y, over and over again. That would be a Britney Spears song. Yeah. Or you can do what Bob Dylan did, or any, you know, say the great songwriters of the 60s, Lennon, McCartney, and some of their more, like, to this day, who really knows what Bungalow Bill means? I mean, you know, maybe yeah. John Lennon does. But they didn't just hit you over the head with the song. They used metaphor, and they used, the whole, and you could ultimately, even with pop songs at their best, you can take out multiple different meanings. Well, that's what artists do. They don't give you the answer; they give you the questions, and then they encourage you to go find the answer. And so, I think, and I, this is a, the new age movement. This is where I would differ from them in some respects. Uh, because a lot of what I'm talking about, I'm sure people would characterize as New Agey. Kimball's gone New Agey. But I would differ because I think most of the people in the so-called New Age movement that I've talked to believe that we are getting the answers. Mm. Um, and I, I may, you know, uh, clearly I'm, I'm generalizing, but I'm just, for the people that I've talked to, this is kind of what I take out of them. They're like, you know, whatever they are, the aliens, the, whoever, they're here to give us the answers. To which I would say, no, they're here to give us the questions. Yeah, I agree with that, and, absolutely, yeah. 
and then they want us to discover the answers. Because like a parent doing the homework, what's the point of doing your kid's homework if the kid won't learn? They they don't learn that way. So I view it more as um, Kaku talks about uh, uh, humans and ants. I view it more as parents and children, and hmm. we're the children. So in a sense, I guess I kind of agree with Stan in a roundabout way, although I wouldn't use his aliens example. But, you know, the idea of a cosmic kindergarten. So if you're dealing with an advanced non-human intelligence, whatever they are, they clearly know more than we do about a whole range of things probably about life after death and all that other sort of stuff. So they could come down, and by down I mean, you know, approach us directly and say, here's the answers. Here it is. It's right here. It, it, here's everything you need to know. But I'm pretty sure that's not how they got it. They right, got right, it. right. That doesn't have, nobody benefits from that, really. No. So then we're back to that idea of them trying to communicate the questions to us and maybe, you know, inspire us to look at certain things in certain ways, but to talk amongst ourselves, to think about these things, and um, to try and come up with our own answers. And frankly, if they're really good artists, as I suspect they are, our answers might be a little different than theirs, but that's okay. They might see the painting, uh, we might see the painting differently than they would, but I don't think they'd have a problem with that, um, if they're true artists. So, you know, I, I, I don't literally think they're painters, you know, or right, musicians, right, right. but I use that, that, that is kind of putting it in human terms that we can understand what I think they're trying to get at. And ultimately, the reason I subtitled the book, um, The Paranormal, The Art of the Imagination. So we've covered the paranormal. The Art of the Imagination, okay, great, we just covered that. And part of it has to do with our own imagination, stimulating our imaginations, to, you know, to sort of think beyond the boundaries of just the materialistic world that we exist in. Money, wrestling. I'm picking on you now. I like pro wrestling, too. Well, who am I, Linda McMahon? Yeah, exactly. Mixed martial arts, you know, just whatever, or consumerism, all that stuff that we're like, it's like, here's what we're bombarded with every day. Well, great. Let's think about things just beyond the world that we exist in. Uh, so there, the art of the imagination. But then it comes around to the third thing, the third piece of the subtitle, which is the human and the human condition. Right. Because well, that 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 I, I hate to jump ahead here, but I feel like I need to get to the. You know, this is jump, ridiculous. Jump wherever but, you want, man. Yeah. No, no, no. I'm 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 lashing myself here. It's ridiculous because it's like the last note in the thing, but the line of conversation leads to this because you have this. You know, you you have this sort of hopefulness about what you're saying here. You know that you know that we're here to to learn from this and grow as a species. But then at the end of the book, you pretty much make the case that you know we are a shitty species, and yeah. that you know there's really it it's possible we could turn things around, and you know you should hope that we do. But at the same time, it's like we're like the serial. Uh, you know, kleptomaniac, just to make it, <laughs> to make it as clean as possible. You know, yeah. someone who just steals and steals, you know, it's someone who's always stealing from you. It's like that's, well, then give him another chance. What, no, I mean, you make the point in the book, you harken back to, uh, to the late Mac Tonys, who, who gave a, a lecture at your event in, uh, Halifax, who said, you know, do we as a species deserve to survive? And he said he doesn't know, and you said that no, we don't. We don't deserve to survive. So, and I, I guess now, now I, I gotta forgive me here because my questions do tend to be like this. So, I, sometimes I'm disagreeing with myself. But in the notes here for that point that you make in the book, I would say that I think the leaders maybe don't deserve to survive. But I think if you look at people on a on a not necessarily a one to one basis, but maybe under the line of fire, more often than I think the human race is a good species, but 
we do shitty things. Well, if we, um, I know I said a lot there, so feel free to no, unpack no. If, that. You, if you say we do, if we do shitty, and I'll assume by shitty you mean evil, right? If we well, do yeah. evil things, then how can we be a good species? I mean, you have to sort of look at what we've done and judge um, the evidence. So in the second to penultimate chapter, so it's the sub-penultimate chapter, which I call the other side of truth. It's like, well, okay, here it is, kids. Here's who we are. Because I eventually go, here's what, you know, the alien art projects, and by alien, I mean, you know, whatever, their art projects, you know, they're they're trying to communicate with us, blah, 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 but why? Well, to encourage us to be better. <clears throat> well, okay. Or, you know, why would they do that? Well, here, there's a chapter called the observer effect, um, which kind of describes uh, how that works, you know, um, but then what do they see when they look at us? So, great. Well, let's step outside ourselves and look at ourselves. And what do we see? I'm not talking about what you see about Tim or what I see about me, but what do we just see as a species? And it's not a pretty sight. Right. And any, anybody who has – this is one thing that I would argue with people on, because anybody who has any intellectual integrity – who could stand up and say that the human species has been a rousing success. We've been generally good more than that. <laughs> no, 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 not at all. Is, is deluded because, and the book, I mean, I could have gone on for 300 pages, just like example after example after example after example, but I'll just use this one. Who do we celebrate? What names are known? If you were to go to uh, school children, say high school children, because at least their knowledge base should be higher, or even people, adults. And I was to give two names. I'm going to give two names. Which one do you think is more likely to be recognized? George Patton or Doug Hammarskjöld? I guarantee you. Now, neither one might be recognized just because people generally don't recognize anyone. Right, that's a anymore. tough one. Yeah, I thought you were going to say like Britney Spears for the second one, but all right. No. Well, okay, I can go down the Britney Spears road in a second. But, you know, between George Patton or Julius Caesar, I could say, or Hitler, there, there's a good example. I'll just say Adolf Hitler or Dog Hammarskjöld. Um, I'm pretty sure Hitler, I guarantee you, Hitler, Patton, Julius Caesar, the militaristic warlord killers. Now, Patton might have been a killer for the American army, fighting perhaps even in a just war against the Nazis, although you could argue, like, how the war started and all that sort of stuff. Don't care. He's a guy who was responsible for killing people. Doug Hammarskjöld, who I guarantee you, you could walk down a sidewalk in any American or Canadian city, for that matter, and you'd be hard-pressed to find anybody who could tell you who Doug Hammarskjöld was. But one of the great peacemakers of the 20th century, tragically killed in a plane crash um, when he was trying to mediate uh, conflict in the Congo. He was Secretary General of the United Nations, one of my own personal heroes, which is why I kind of singled him out and said, look, we don't teach this, we don't teach what this guy was about in school. We don't teach who he was in school. In fact, in the United States, the United Nations as even a concept is viewed as a horrible thing by most people. Not all, but by most people. And even in Canada, which has long been a supporter of the United Nations, it's starting to be viewed just as a concept. Forget about the practical aspects of how it works, but just as a concept as, you know, well, what's the point? What's it for? Right. We don't celebrate the peacemakers. We celebrate the war makers in our society. That's one aspect of what we do. I use this example in the book, too, which, again, I you know, I like good ex sort of good examples because I'm watching a football game right now out of the corner of my eye, and... Um, how you know, rude. Actually, this kind of works out. It's the Indianapolis Colts and the Jacksonville Jaguars. Lousy game and not so bad when it comes to the teams. But let me run a few other team names off. Uh, the Cleveland Indians, the Atlanta Braves, the Edmonton Eskimos, which is a Canadian football league team, 
And then, the, you know, sort of, as I think I say in the book, the worst of the worst, the Washington Redskins with, you know, so you've got Chief Wahoo and all that sort of stuff. Well, let's try and put that in context. That would be like aliens from another planet coming to Earth, exterminating 95% of the native population through disease and warfare and a whole bunch of other things. And then two or 300 years in the future, after they've completely taken over the planet, stuck us on the worst possible land possible, stolen everything, changed our all of our beliefs and, and pigeonholed us into their way of thinking, eh, they have some sort of sport. We'll call it foosball. And they name teams like the Zelder Grab Pinkskins and the uh, Mungu Mungu Terrans or whatever their language would be. See what I'm saying? So... We celebrate these kinds of things. We don't even think about it, what we've done, uh, basically committing genocide against the native populations. Where did all this wonderful land? I talk about Los Angeles. Um, two things about L.A. Near where, uh, where I stay with Greg Bishop all the time is the uh, Holocaust Museum in Los Angeles, and there's a memorial to Raoul Wallenberg, another person that very few people would know, um, but he saved a, a large number of Swedish diplomats, saved a large number of Jews during the Second World War, another hero of mine. So, first of all, why do we even need a monument to a guy like Raoul Wallenberg? If we didn't do things like the Holocaust, you wouldn't need that monument. You wouldn't need a Holocaust museum. But then there's a the question of, well, okay, how did these wonderful cities like Los Angeles get built? Well, we came in, we exterminated the native population and took the land from them. We never think about that. But we continue to do it. So, you look at this, the conflict in the Middle East, and you say, well, okay, who's right and who's wrong? Some people will tell you the Israelis are right. Some people will tell you the Palestinians were right. I would sit in the middle and I would say, you're all wrong. I mean, <laughs> you're fighting. Yes, in some cases, um, you might be right. In other cases, you might be right. But you're all wrong because you're, you're all fighting. Right, so, right. And this is part of the human condition. All of this is part of the human condition. There's this wonderful video that somebody did. I posted on Facebook. And uh, when you put this up in the um, Banal of America forum, in the interim, I'll try and find this video again. But it's about the so-called Holy Land. And it's a three or three and a half minute cartoon video that somebody did that basically shows that the Holy Land and most major religions think that this is where God hangs out. This is the great spiritual center. Um, this is the Holy Land. So mm -hmm. it should be the Peace Land. You should be able to call it something else. If it was truly holy, it would be the Peace Land. Right. But it's all about people fighting. And it's not picking on any one religion. Look, there's a you know, an ancient Assyrian killing or an Egyptian killing a Jew. Right. Oh. So everybody wants this little patch of land. Yeah. Right. That's terrible. The poor Jews. But wait, hold on. Now the Jews have the land and they're killing somebody else. And wait, now the British are there with tanks and they're killing the Jews and the Palestinians. And wait, now the Palestinians and Jews. And it's like everybody's just killing everybody because they all want this one piece of land. Well, that's part of the human condition, too. So I go down all of this stuff. I talk about this is what an advanced non-human intelligence would see when they look at us. If And yes, there are exceptions that prove the rule. There are great peacemakers like Hammarskjöld and Gandhi. And though he was a flawed man, Martin Luther King, who did great things, who spoke and tried to lead us in better directions and better places. They are the exceptions, however, that prove the rule. Because for every one of those that you can trot out, they're hardly ever taught in schools. Um, they're not the things that we celebrate. And... Um, and, you you know, people like Dog Hammarskjöld are forgotten because that's not the nature of the human condition. Right. So, you, I mean, so at so the end the, of the day, we, uh, I mean, this is going to end in a nuclear holocaust and you in Halifax being like, well, we blew it. Yeah, literally. Yeah. Well, sure. I, I mean, mean so that's the scare. This is, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not besmirching you here. I'm not shitting on you. I'm just saying 
I'm shitting on the whole race, I guess. <laughs> I, I, again, though, I go back to this thing that, that I think that fundamentally I think people are, are good, but they've been misled not just for, like, generations, but for, like, eons. Well, yeah, I use – it's interesting you should say that. The primal, primary example I use on an individual basis is uh, Albert Speer, yeah. who was – because with the Nazis, it's easy. Most people say Hitler bad, Heydrich bad, Himmler bad. Those are names. Maybe not Heydrich so much, um, although he was the, orcus, the architect of the Holocaust. But Himmler and Hitler, I think most people know, and they go, look, anybody whose name starts with H in Nazi Germany, bad. Um, but very few people today really remember Albert Speer. Uh, he was Hitler's architect, then he became his minister of armaments. He was basically the guy who kept the Nazi war machine running in the 1940s, probably far longer than it should have. It's tried at Nuremberg, uh, at the major war criminals trial. Most of the, uh, war criminals were convicted and executed. Speer, who, uh, who was tried and convicted, only got 20 years. Now, you might say, well, 20 years seems like an awful long time, and it is. He served all 20 years, then he was um, let out, and he went on to a career as a highly successful author, kind of going around talking about his experiences. But here's the thing about Speer. He was the one Nazi that the judges could look at, and he could say, you know what? He's, he's actually he's cultured, he's intelligent, and he was. Um, he's kind of like us. So we rec- and he sort of admitted in a general way that the Nazis had been bad. He said, look, we did bad things. But he also was very careful to say, I didn't know about it, even though it was revealed later on that he clearly did know about the Holocaust. Um, but he was, he was a very bad man who did very bad things, but he kind of looked like the judges and he sort of seemed like, and it was hard to believe that he would do bad things. So I, in the book I say, you know, Hitler wasn't the monster. Well, he was. But he's the easy monster. Like that one, you you can point that one out. That's easy. Speer was the real monster because he's us. And using him as an avatar for every German that either participated directly in the Holocaust or turned a blind eye to the Holocaust, and not just every German, every one of us. I I use in a footnote, I talk about the the St. Louis, which was a ship that was carrying uh, Jewish refugees from Germany Prior to the Second World War, we all kind of, and by we I mean our our ancestors, uh, certainly the political class, knew what was going on, knew what was going to happen, and it was turned away from the United States, they wouldn't allow them to land, it was turned away from Canada, so we're no better than the U.S., we wouldn't allow them to land, and it was turned away from Cuba too, which was more or less an American dependency, for all intents and purposes, and it wound up back in Europe, and 25% of the people that were, I think it was 25% of the people that were on that ship wound up being killed in the Holocaust. And others um, who weren't killed in the Holocaust certainly would have suffered a great deal. So, you know, this is who we are. And are we getting better? We like to think we are. But are we really? Is our society today any different, any better than, say, the what we would consider the more barbaric societies of ancient Rome or the Middle Ages or any of that sort of stuff? Or are we just different in form and degree? maybe degree, although I would argue if you can drop a nuclear weapon on Hiroshima or Nagasaki and kill 100,000 people, yes, you are different in degree from the ancient Romans. You can kill a lot more people a lot faster, and we have. If you have drones, like, I'm sorry to go on about this, Tim, but it is fundamental to what I'm trying to talk about in the book, and I'll use one more example. Barack Obama, who I would have voted for if I was in the United States, um, unless I voted for Jill Stein, the Green Party candidate, yeah, I don't know about the third parties here. 
Yeah, I know. I realize that. He has a Nobel Peace Prize. He didn't really get it for doing anything other than being the first black president elected and talking about hope and change. But you know what? There are people who have received Nobel Peace Prizes for um, lesser things, I think. So fine. But what did he do in the four years after? Well, he's expanded the drone program. You're still in Afghanistan fighting. You're still in Iraq, even though you say the war has ended. Um, American soldiers are still there being drawn out, perhaps. But now the United States is flying drones over these countries and indiscriminately, because there's an awful lot of civilians dying, dropping, the, you don't even bother invading anymore with troops. It's just like it's so much easier. This is where the future is headed. So much easier to just fly drones over and drop bombs. Well, people in the U.S. should start thinking, if we're doing that to other countries, how long is it before we start using those drones to do nasty things to our own citizens? That's one, that's a political question. But this is this is the world we live in, and we have the technology now to do the kinds of things that we've been doing for all of human history on a much grander scale and kill far more people. And we've had the cloud of nuclear Armageddon hanging over our heads for 60 or 70 years, 60 years, I guess. So the question is, do we do deserve to survive? I ask it in the book. I say no. Now, that's a very long-winded way of saying we're bad, and we should. if, if we all ended tomorrow – in a moral sense, we don't deserve to survive as a species. As the Smiths would say, we just haven't earned it yet, baby. Having I don't necessarily that, disagree with that, but well, I there still... What's, a, what's that? Well, both Mac and I, who kind of came to that conclusion, we saw the hopeful side. that We did see the box and the Dog Hammer Schultz and the peacemakers and the sort of philosophers who would make a, who would encourage us to think and to be better about ourselves. And the people who might say that mixed martial arts is a bad thing, you know, gladiatorial games is a bad thing for the human condition. And I could go on and on. I do believe that there are those kinds of people. I do believe that somewhere deep in the human soul, there is, and I use the term soul, but whatever you want to call it, condition, mm. there, there is good. And by good, I mean um, the ability to not be bad and harm other people. I just think that... We don't manifest that. That is not the sort of lingua franca of who we are or who we've ever been. So if there is this, if they are out there, and if they are, as I suspect, not here to do us harm and not here to just ignore us, so that leaves the third option, they're here to do something to our benefit, what they would be doing, having looked at us and saying, you guys are seriously screwed up and, you know, there are better places for you to go, is they're trying to encourage us to find our own way to those better places. And that's, to me, what the paranormal is about, by stimulating all of our emotions, by making us aware that there's so much more around us, that we're interconnected with each other um, in ways that perhaps we can't even imagine yet. And when I talk about, re in the chapter on reincarnation, I kind of talk about that, the idea of a collective consciousness beyond death, so that kind of, you know, when we die, mm, what is... I have that in the notes, yeah. Yeah, we, you know, we go to this, we, we're all part, so Paul Kimball and Tim Benall and Stan Friedman and whoever else you want to talk, Nick Redfern, we're all really just part of the same overarching collective consciousness. When we die, we eventually, at some point in the sort of grand universal scale of time, become a permanent part of that. But before that happens, we keep coming back to learn more, to experience more, so we can contribute eventually more to that collective consciousness. Again, that's a thought experiment. For, for fans of Star Trek Deep Space Nine, view it, kind of think about it like the Great Link, Odo and the Changelings. That Jesus. I Please, but you go back to the Great Link. I don't know what the hell you're talking about with that, but uh, 
All right. You're not, so, deep, you're not a Deep Space Nine fan? No, no that's really no. far down the, the Star Trek rabbit hole. Oh, that's terrible. Is it as far down as Voyager? I don't know. Which, is that the tertiary one or the fourth one? I don't even know. Yeah. I, that's, yeah. yeah. Um, all right. So, yeah, I mean, I think we're, I think we're in, in agreement there on that. I wasn't um, – I mean, believe me, I'm as disgusted by the human race as anybody, but it's I, – I feel like it's a combination of apathy in modern times – and this sort of like fierce sense of self-preservation that's been foisted upon the average person by people who lead. And it may go back to that whole idea of absolute power corrupts absolutely. And, you know, this sort of this thirst for power or something that, that leads people to to lead their underlings or their constituents, if you will, astray. Because like you said, you know, they, they, this boat, they wouldn't let it land. But, I mean, I'd, I'd like to think that if they average citizenry knew what was going on and knew the consequences of it that they would be upset. Maybe it was known. Maybe, I mean, I don't know. I wasn't around back then. You're, you're the historian. But, you know, I'd like to think that they would be outraged that that, that kind of thing happened. You would, uh, except when the um, terrorists attacked the United States on 9-11 and um, killed 3,000 plus people, Terrible act. Mm-hmm. But the response that you got from the vast majority of Americans that you're still getting today is terrorist bad. All right. I'll go with that. Um, evil to the, you know, the evildoers as W called them. And so our response to that will be the following. Consume more. Life continues. Keep buying stuff, folks. Um, that was the first thing he said. And secondly, we're going to get them and we're going to bring them to justice. It's like, okay, get them, get the individuals responsible. Well, they're all dead, but if there were other people who helped them, okay, I can get that. And this is totally on them. This is completely their fault. We did absolutely nothing wrong. What? Hold on. Pardon? <laughs> you know, forget about the individual terrorists. Maybe this could be a learning moment. Right. I absolutely agree with that. I mean, that that was a, you know, yeah, like the people who try to say what you're just saying were like shunned and, and like yeah, like Bill Maher, you know. I mean, I don't agree or with Bill Noam. Maher on everything, but what happened to him after 9/11 is pretty much exactly what you're saying. So sure, or Noam Chomsky is another good example. There are there are individuals who are making that case. They were Michael Moore, too, although he's a blowhard, but Michael Moore. You can go down the list. There were some people right. who were making. The, but again, that goes case. that goes back to what I was saying, though. Apathy. But people know a sense no, of no, self-preservation that's foisted upon them. That's what you call it. I call it an abdication of responsibility because it's, you can't – it comes back to that idea. You can't force people – well, you can if you do it at gunpoint, but it wasn't done at gunpoint. You can't force people to believe certain things or do certain things. They get to choose. Hmm. Like Stan with the title of science was wrong. He could have walked away from that. Well, when George Bush stands up and says, they are the evildoers, we've got to get them, and we did nothing wrong – People could have said, well, hold on, wait a second now. How many bases do we have in their countries? Yes, they were bad. So we do not condone what they did. That was an evil act. But we might want to think about what we're doing in their countries. And a film like Syriana, a very complex film, is a good example of you know artists making that point, putting it out there and saying, look, this is a very nuanced, complex question. So, yes, evil was done to us, but okay, what kind of evil have we done to them? And by the way, what kind of evil are we about to do in response? You know, is this a proportionate response that we're about to inflict on these countries in the Middle East and these people? But those are not questions that are asked, but they're questions that should be asked, obviously, I think so. Um, But that's part of the human condition. We have a herd mentality, but all of that is, it's like the Holocaust again, that idea that, you know, you abdicate responsibility. Well, we didn't do it. We weren't part of it. We didn't know where those trains were going. Well, 
it doesn't matter where they were going. The fact that they were putting Jews on them and shipping them somewhere for some reason, even if it was just a farm and, you know, to create slave labor that would benefit you, doesn't matter. You wrenched them out of their homes, stuck them on trains and sent them somewhere. That alone should have been enough to make you go, hold on, this isn't right. Hmm. But so really the question of whether or not you knew that they were being killed doesn't really matter, does it? Because uh, a great film, Judgment at Nuremberg, uh, which everyone should watch. At the end of it, it's a a bunch of judges who are, um, it's one of the lesser Nazi trials, who are convicted. Burt Lancaster, Spencer Tracy, wonderful film. And they're convicted of uh, crimes against humanity because they were judges who served the Nazis. Now, three of them were sort of the stock stereotypes. They were doing it for money or for power or whatever. But there was a fourth one. He was a great jurist, Lancaster's character. And he understands that what he did was wrong. And eventually he confesses it on the stand. He says, look, we were wrong. And I'm the worst of them because I knew they were wrong but for reasons of nationalism and patriotism, I went along with them. So he's convicted and blah, blah, blah. Best scene in the film comes at the very end. He asks Spencer Tracy, who's the lead judge at the trial, to come by and visit him before he goes back to the United States. He does, and he gives him some papers. He says, look, I trust you with my papers of my cases and everything. And he says, well, thank you. Spencer Tracy's about to leave, and Lancaster's character, the German judge, says, I want you to know, above everybody else, you're, because I, from the one prisoner that you convicted who respects you, that I I did not know where this was going to lead. He didn't say he didn't know what was being done later. He said, when we started, I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't see where this was going to go. Hmm. And Spencer, you would think, okay, Spencer Tracy's going, this is, oh, he's, he's guilty, but he gets it, right? And Spencer Tracy's going to make him feel better about himself now by saying, I understand that. You're a bit, good man who did bad things, whatever. Spencer Tracy just looks at him and he says, whatever the character's name is, I forget, um, Hair X. You should have known from the moment you first sentenced an innocent man to die where it was going to go. And then he walks out, just totally walks out. And you see the shot of Lancaster totally shattered because he still doesn't get it. Even though he's kind of admitted that what the Nazis did was wrong and he was part of it, he still doesn't truly understand that it began the moment he sacrificed his his reason, his uh, humanity, his ability to empathize with his fellow humans and did one single wrong act. So this all, does this even, you'll edit all this out, Tim. Does this even fit on a paranormal podcast? You're not a paranormal. You're just a general podcast now. Exactly. But to, but to me, that's what it's all about. That's what the paranormal in its ultimate um, sort of purpose has to be about, to make us think about who we are, how we fit in, what we're doing to each other, and what we might do when we interact with these, any sort of advanced non-human intelligence. That's the purpose of religion, or it should well, be. Well, I... You know, I mean, I'm in agreement with you on a lot of this, but as someone who is in agreement with you on it... Play the devil's advocate. I feel like... No, 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 no. I'm not going there. I feel like it's an exercise in futility. Like I said, this is just going to end with you in Halifax and probably me here in Boston saying, you know, as the as the bright flash happens, you know, well, we blew it. You know, I don't think that there can be really be a turnaround necessarily. Oh, I do. That's That's the hopeful note that I strike in the book, because... You know, all of that, I think we have to understand all of that bad stuff. But even if we've just created this paranormal sort of they, this advanced non-human intelligence, even if we just made it up in our own minds, um, that's something within, within us telling us, look, we're not happy with the way things are subconsciously. Um, we need to change. We need to think differently. And even if it doesn't happen in our generation or the next generation, it's an incremental process. Uh, and if it's just one person 
in the course of our lifetimes, Tim, and then one person in the course of the next lifetime, then that's a little progress. And we need to take the big picture view of all this and not be so much in the now, but be in what Paul Tillich and many other philosophers and religious leaders have called Oh, I like this. The Eternal Now. That's a good segue. Um, which is actually the title of one of the chapters in my book, The Eternal Now. Um, this just idea relax. That, <laughs> just, what? I said just relax. <laughs> no, it just, it's, I like segue moments where you just kind of lead yourself into, hey, that makes sense. But yeah, we, instead of being so obsessed with the now, you know, kind of think about the eternal now. Yesterday, today, tomorrow, um, and tomorrow, and tomorrow, and tomorrow, to uh, quote from Macbeth. Or the Scottish play, as my actor friends call it. I guess, I, I mean, I'm just... I'm not trying to depress you. No, 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 no. You're not depressing me. I'm just saying that as I listen to you, you're making me turn more on the human race. As I started this thing, I said that I thought the human race was fundamentally good. And you're just saying, no, 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 no. But I still think it is. I still think that people are being misled. But I don't think that they can overcome the, the misleading. And I know that you're like, well... They should stand up and, and say enough is enough. But again, it's that self-preservation. It's, it's, I think it's, we're a fundamentally broken species. It's been, we've, we've, we've developed, we're, we have, we're fundamentally, our development has been retarded. And I don't mean in, in the uh, pejorative sense and that awful word. I mean, it's, it's been stunted. Right. But, you're and maybe trying... a switch can be flipped that will turn it around and, and we can rise up. But I still think I guess you didn't say where I'm going here. You view it as a us versus them. When you talk about it that way, you're saying it's been stunted. Well, who's it been stunted by? Well, leaders who've misled us. Well, wait a second now. Um, and ourselves, talking... and ourselves through you know apathy but, and as you said, uh, the uh, abdication of responsibility. Right. So we might not be able to change the big picture. I might let's assume I think Obama's wrong for dropping bombs on Afghanistan or something, whatever. I mean there's not a whole lot as an individual I can do about that. I can vote, I can become active, I can write about it, maybe I can change hearts and minds. It's possible. But the odds against that are are long. But I can make my own little contribution in any one of a number of different ways to improving the human condition. And it it could be all sorts of different things. Um and usually happening on a community level, so not the meta level of world politics, mm. but just on a community level. Educate right. your kids. Think, most importantly, think, period. So you were expecting I was going to say something, but no, no just think. <laughs> so when people tell you stuff, question it. And again, if I'm the advanced non-human intelligence, that's what I'm trying to encourage humans to do. Think about things mm. and not just accept what you are told. And I think on the materialistic side of the world, weirdly enough, they just accept what they're told. Um, right. I think it's right. the people on the, par the people that actually are interested in the paranormal, whatever you want to call it, the supernatural, any of that stuff, who actually start questioning things. It takes me back to Sir Isaac Newton. You know, the re I think the reason, having read a lot of his spiritual writings, why he would have been, why he was interested in that, even as he was one of the great scientists of all time, is he said, look, science, the scientific method, all of this sort of stuff, can tell me how things work. And I, I mean, this sounds trite, because it is trite, but it's also true, and true, we sometimes forget what is true. So science can tell me how it works, but it cannot tell me why it works. And I'm just as interested in why it works, or why it happens, as I am how it happens. And so that's the part that sort of the modern materialistic culture 
that we live in in the Western world has forgotten. And I'm not against the how it works question, which I think a lot of people, they view it as some sort of, again, this takes us back to the beginning. They view it as mutually exclusive, no matter which side hmm. of that fence right. you're on. I don't. Like Newton, I just compared myself to Isaac Newton. Uh, yeah, I, I mentally noted that, yeah. Check that off my bucket list of things I can get away with. But like Newton, like any of these people, it's not mutually exclusive. They each have the things that they can do, and they're both important. You know, I want to understand how cancer works, because finding a cure for cancer is a good thing. It means we live longer and all that sort of stuff. But I also want to, and I also want to understand the things that science can answer. Why? You know, these things exist in the world. Maybe they just exist as random things. But I, you know, I think there's, there's, there's the why questions that science is, it's not their cup of tea. It's not what they're designed to do. And both of them are good things. You should think about and deal with science and deal with the, the how things work. But at the end of the day, you should also step back and say, okay, why? Why is all of this here? Why are we here? And then there's, you know, there's probably a million different answers that we could all come up with. But at least we're thinking about it. And I think that process, that understanding that they're not mutually exclusive, that they're both important, they both have a place, um, you shouldn't denigrate either the science, quote, quote, science people shouldn't denigrate the people who are are spiritual. The spiritual people shouldn't turn their nose up at science. That's They should both be realizing, as I think many scientists do, Einstein, I quote Einstein in the book too, who realized that they're separate things, but they're also, you know, they're two sides of the same coin, but it is the same coin, if mm. that makes any sense. But well, back to the human condition, there is hope. So well, there's always hope. Right. So, well, the problem right, is, too, hope. that I think that you're preaching to the choir in a sense. I think the people who are interested in the paranormal are doing these things. We are sort of looking at at the human race from an outside Maybe. perspective. Some of us are. I mean, there's a, there's, yeah, sure. I mean, you and I are. We're having this conversation. It's, it, it, it's, it's the people who have no idea who you and I are and who, you know, are watching uh, the football game right now instead of... Well, that would be 99.999% of the human population. Um, but And I, I'm not really doing this to try and... I'm just trying to sell books, Tim. So uh, <laughs> I'm just saying what I have to say. I've realized that the new age thing is the current zeitgeist. I'll probably spin on a dime in a year and start selling some science book or something. Oh, yeah. Ancient Aliens, an examination by Paul Kimball. Um, well, you know, the Ancient Aliens thing is interesting. I think the show is just, I speak solely now from the television point of view. It's a terrible television show. I don't watch anything yeah, on, on TV that's paranormal. Yeah. Oh, the professional idea. wrestling. Yes, well, quite so. The idea of ancient aliens, though, if I'm going to call them, um, I do find interesting, whether chariots of the gods or any of that stuff. I'm not saying these folks are right, but the idea, again, something else I talk about in the book, so to bring it back to the book, mm. um, you know, the idea that there might have been civilizations on the planet Earth before ours was here. Well, okay, a lot of people would say, hey, well, really? I've actually heard this. Where's the trash? We should be able to find some sort of evidence of a, of aliens if they were here, or or an advanced like Mac Tony's crypto terrestrials, yeah. if you will. Really? Do you know how old the Earth is? I mean, because the, the irony is that people that usually have that criticism are the so-called scientific, materialistic, um, disbeliever types. They say, well, science would be able to find. Really? Well, here's the first thing science is going to tell you, dumb, dumb, that the Earth is billions of years old. You've spent the last 150 years beating that into the heads of anyone who used to think the Earth was 6,000 years old. And you're right. Turns out you were right. But here's the flip side of Earth being billions of years old. 
It's billions of years old. Like, seriously, dude, do you understand how much a billion years is, much less, say, three or four billion years? Uh, can you even comprehend that? So we've been around, recorded history, quote, quote, for, let's say, 2,000 years. And we know very little about even 2,000 years ago. The, the Roman Empire, the sort of the greatest civilization on Earth at that time, we know very little about what happened. And yes, we know who the emperors were and that sort of thing. But only now are we... There are still archaeological ruins. We're not sure how Roman life. I mean, read any history on the Roman Empire, which is kind of a pet peeve of mine, or not a pet peeve, but a pet interest of mine. You realize there's actually an awful lot, far more that we don't even know about the Romans than we than we do know, and that's an era that we think we sort of have down. Well, that's two thousand years ago. Imagine, I don't know, um, two hundred million years ago. Do you really think that we could find it? How long did it take us to find Troy? A long we time. Did eventually. Exactly. We put for thousands of years it was considered to be a legend until somebody found it. So the idea that we would be able to like the G spot. Yeah. <laughs> the what? Say <laughs> so what now? I've heard myths. It's like Bigfoot. It's the strange the strange sort of thing or you know. I had to, I'm sorry, you left that perfectly for me. I had no, to throw it out there. I, I can't <laughs> all Canadians, that's what we do. We team up and then we let the Americans hit it. So <laughs> And we let them think that they're really clever for having done so. Oh, please. Secretly, we know that who threw the softball up in the air. <laughs> so, you know, this idea that we would know what had happened in our past, going back millions or hundreds of millions or even billions of years ago, there could have been a civilization on this planet. And I talk about the idea that um, time travel, because I get into the idea of the eternal now, past, present, future, time travel, all that sort of stuff, alternate worlds. But I say we always... Um, not always, but we almost always view time travel as somebody from the future, this Star Trek thing. Yeah. Oh, they're coming into the past, like Kirk and the boys travel into the past. You very rarely in fiction ever see um, a depiction of people in the past traveling to the future because people assume, oh, well, we don't know how to time travel now, so if we haven't figured it out now, clearly somebody in 1804 had, hadn't figured it out, and that's probably a pretty fair assumption. So time travel from the past couldn't work. So we're not going to go there. But right, what if, what if it's like another race that had inhabited this planet, millions or even a billion or two billion Right, you're talking about time travel from the distant past, not recent past. Exactly. And if you talk to a guy like Michio Kaku, he'll tell you that time travel is theoretically possible. He'll, and I, I think I talk about this in the book, um, and they'll say, well, it's far more likely that you can do it going forward hmm. than going back. Meaning, in a theoretical sense, there are fewer problems with traveling forward in time than there are with traveling backwards in time. Right, you don't have all those paradoxes and shit. Uh, question of paradoxes, but it's also a question of um, physics and basic. all that. Yeah, yeah. here's two guys who know nothing about physics, but we'll just say, yeah, physics and that shit, right? Yeah, <laughs> well, I have a whole episode on time travel coming up, so folks can... <laughs> oh, well, there you go. All that stuff that most people who talk about time travel don't have an actual clue about, including me, so I don't pretend to be a physicist, but I have talked to people who are actually top-notch quantum you know, mechanic physicist dudes. <laughs> and I say that only to really annoy anybody who's listening to this and go, nobody knows what quantum mechanics is but 12 people on the planet. Yeah, well, whatever. Um, where are we? Where, what the hell are we talking? I have no idea. I just like dropping the word quantum into any conversation about the paranormal because it annoys a certain group of people. And there's still a small part of me that likes to annoy these certain groups of people, Tim. So that's that's my that's my little dog whistle to the arch disbeliever group who go, what? 
Quantum? Oh, they always use quantum. They don't know what it means. Oh, God. Um, anyway, Tim, you're the host. Get us back on the rails. That's your job, not mine. I'm the rambler. You're the host. Slow down now. Slow down. I was just uh, taking focus a breath. Us. What's that? Focus us. Focus us, Tim. Focus us. <laughs> I, I need a dose of focusing. I gave up. What are you saying? Haven't you ever watched the Simpsons episode where they feed Bart Simpson focusing? I think it's called focusing. Oh, yeah. It's like Ritalin, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I remember that one. I need some paranormal Ritalin here. What could cause that? Clearly aliens can cause that. As happened in Roswell, New Mexico, as happens in a television show I like called The Event. You have to face facts that aliens are all around us and they have finally gotten to the NHL. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. I met a dolphin down there and I swear to God that dolphin looked not at me but into my soul, into my goddamn soul, Annie, and said, I'm saving you, Megan. Not with his mouth, but he said it I'm assuming telepathically. All right. Well, I've kind of been a bit of a devil's advocate on this show here with you, but I don't mean to be that way. But I know I'm just going to this like going, tell me about Chapter 5 and all the things I agree about. You know what I mean? So it's, it's, I, I agree with a lot of the stuff in the book. But there was one point that, that I thought was sort of paradoxical uh, in the book that I don't know if you were being sarcastic or what, so I guess I'll, I'll sort of ask you about this. Now, you have a whole chapter on the series of coincidences that happened to you in Los Angeles when you were house I was going to say babysitting. Oh, God, poor Greg. House-sitting for <laughs> Greg Bishop. Right. Uh, <laughs> well, you were babysitting the cat, I guess. So you were cat-sitting. Yes, he has a cat. So I was out in L.A. three years ago, and um, while Greg and Sigrid were on their honeymoon in Europe, and while I was there, um, my friend Christina Kafari stayed with me for a few days, and then my brother came out and stayed a few days. And in that period of time, yeah, there were some synchronistic experiences. Right, right. A whole a whole series of them. And, and, and yes. you, I wouldn't say you put a lot of credence into them, but you highlight them, let's say, and, and sort of uh, make people look at that. Sure. But then later in the book, when you're ghost hunting, there's a painting that's supposed to be cursed, and if you touch it, someone you know will die or something along those lines. I'm sure you can clarify this. And you touched it, and then someone on your crew's family member died the next day. And then you have a conversation with another member of the crew, and they say, do you think, I'm going to quote, I'll read the exchange here from the books. I copied it uh, into my notes. Do you think, he asked, and then his voice trailed off. No, I answered, absolutely not. Yeah, he said, pure coincidence. Right, I replied. So I'm having trouble reconciling how you can put a lot of stock into these coincidences that happened in L.A., but then later you agree that it's a coincidence that you touched the painting and it led to these series of events. Now, there's no, there's always the possibility that you touching the painting, that that it is a coincidence in a sense, but, I mean, I don't know. I have, I have trouble reconciling that, so maybe you can explain to me your point of view there. Sure. Um, it's uh, it's no, um, what did you say? A paradox at all. Um, two things that I would say. First of all, the thing with the painting, the sort of, let's call it an incident, whatever you want to call it with the painting, <laughs> all right, happened, yeah. happened prior to the coincidence, the run of coincidences. So you could look at it and say, even though I think in the book, um, the coincidence chapter comes before the writing. Right, right. yeah, and I realized the timeline was different. Yeah. yeah, it's because it's grouped by themes. So... Um, my opinions could have changed in the interim, but that's not actually the answer, but that could have been the answer. The actual answer is when we were talking, 
and and I guess maybe it didn't come through when I was trying to write that in the book, although I thought it did. Um, but this is the first feedback I've had on that. Dave and I were – and it's Dave Sadler, the guy that I'm talking to. He's one of the British guys we were working with. So we were working with a group called the uh, UPIA. I always get the, the Unknown Phenomena Investigation Association. I'm right. sure that's it. And there were three guys. We were doing this investigation at a hotel that we were staying at, the Lion, Swan, and Congleton. And, yeah, one of the legends was there was this cheesy 60s painting in the basement. If you went down and touched that, somebody you knew would die. So Dave and I, I was back in arch, not skeptic mode, but I this once you see the painting, I mean, it was like a half-naked woman. Right, it's hard to take seriously. Yeah, totally hard to take seriously. And Dave and I were having a lot of fun because he's a fun-loving guy. I'm a fun-loving guy. So we were kind of really – Holly and a couple of the other UPIA guys – we're upstairs doing the more serious stuff. So we're on camera. And we're just kind of goofing off. And, you know, I kind of pick it up and blah, blah, blah. And Dave and was like, oh, hello. And we gave it a name. And then we put it down. And we thought nothing more about it. Well, one of the other UPI get, UPIA guys, it's a very Bruce Willis, UPIA mother. Oh. Uh, was upstairs. Shut your mouth. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Shut your mouth. And the next, the next, they're supposed to show up the next day, and we were going to um, this cemetery uh, at an old church in Shocklack. And I write about that. Some weird stuff went down there, too. Hmm. But the two guys, Dave had been there many times before. The other two guys, um, Steve Mara and Paul Reeves, had not. So they had been going on about how they were really looking to forward to finally getting there. So, okay, the next morning rolls around. I I, I get up, I go down for breakfast, and there's Dave and Steve Mara, but I don't see Paul Reeves. And he was definitely, like, supposed to be coming. And I walk over to Dave and Steve, and I say, hey, you know, where's Paul? I thought he might be out in the parking lot or something. I said, well, he's not coming. And I said, uh, now, I, this is a paraphrased conversation. I can't remember the exact words, but, you know, I would have said something along the lines of, uh, okay, why? Because he was, like, you know, really psyched last night. And, and they um, they said, well, his father passed away. Uh, early this morning, which is to say pretty much at a close to the same time we were screwing around with the painting. Right. And, uh, and Steve wandered off and he didn't, cause he wasn't part of the make fun of the painting thing. And Dave and I really, we were standing there and it was the, what I recount in the book is a very uneasy conversation where we're sort of like, um, so, you know, uh, yeah, that sucks. Yeah, big suck. Um, was he like, you know, ill or anything? Uh, no, no, you know, he was old, but, uh, so old people die, but, you know, there wasn't anything, couldn't really see it coming. Oh, okay. Um, listen, um, uh, do you think maybe we sort of, uh, no, no, uh, that couldn't have been us, right? Yeah, no, I'm sure that wasn't us. Yeah, it's just a coincidence. Yeah. But that's kind of the tone it was. Okay, so yeah. I, had, I said, I, I didn't know if you were being sarcastic or not, so. It, we, it, not, not, sarcastic not, may not be the right word, but you know what I mean. Yeah, it's one of those things that comes through in the book, too. At least I hope it does. This idea, my own kind of journey, and trying to uh, not apologize for my interest in the paranormal, but that includes to myself, to not be embarrassed by it. So when certain things happen, and there's a couple of times in the book, certainly in the when I talk about the Shocklack Cemetery thing, uh, when I saw what I call a void in the sky, or when I heard the horse's hooves. And if folks read it, they'll understand what I'm talking about. But these sort of paranormal, these kind of anomalous events where a number of us heard um, what sounded like horse's hooves. And that's part of the legend, the ghostly legend of that cemetery. There's nothing around there that could create that sound. 
but people had heard it. I heard it. Holly heard it. Uh, my co-host, Holly Stevens, heard it um, twice. But here's the thing. I didn't tell anybody that I had seen the void in the sky or heard their horses' hooves until other people had mentioned that they had, in the void in the sky, the black, this kind of black shape that appeared in the sky. My uh, co-producer, Dale Stevens, uh, came over to me and he said, hey, Paul, I, I gotta tell you, you know, guess, guess what happened? I was just sitting at the back of the church and I said, I don't know, Dave or Dale, what happened? He said, I saw this, this black thing in the sky over there at a different time than I had seen it now. And, and he describes it and I, I went, well, here's the thing. Um, me too, over there in a different direction at a different time. Really? Yeah. Freaky. Why didn't you say something, Paul? Um, you know, yeah. and, th- and then, of course, now that I have confirmation that somebody else, I don't feel embarrassed by it. So then we did a segment on it. I talked about everything else. But Holly had gone through this thing. She had been a the part of the church. She had heard the horses. Was, I knew she had talked about it. She had been very upset. Um, or upset's not the word. Yeah, a little upset, actually. Shaken. Sort of out of, exactly. Perfect word. Shaken. I knew that. And so I kind of walk over at one point, and I, I try and sort of comfort her or whatever, reassure her. And then I just wander away. And she hears it again. And I come over, and, and she's like, well, I'm really, like, freaked out. You can see in the episode, which is online. It's available online. I'll post a link in your form or whatever. And you can kind of – you don't see everything because a lot of this was – it worked out. It was just off camera. But you do see some of it. And I say, well, here's the thing. I, I heard it, too. And she goes, what? <laughs> you know, I thought she was going to throttle me. She said, why didn't you say anything? And I said, well, you know, I just – I kind of like to pocket these things because I get a little embarrassed about admitting that maybe I experienced something paranormal because hmm. I was still going through that process. It's that I don't have that problem anymore, obviously. I've written a book about it um, or I'm talking about it to you on the radio with it. But back then, even while I was shooting a television series where I am a ghost investigator, my whole – purpose on being on television, like on screen, is to investigate these things. And things were happening to me. I had trouble kind of wrapping my mind around it and just admitting it because that laughter curtain, right. it's self-imposed. I was afraid of what people would think of me. But then, you know, that I think back to that conversation I had with my friend about Obama and God and all that sort of stuff. It's like, why should we be embarrassed by this? If something happened, it happened. I'm not going to tell you, say what it is, but something happened. I heard horses hooves in a cemetery on cobblestones, and I live in a city where there are cobblestone streets. I've actually heard horses hooves, you know, because we have Halifax and Old City. And so anyway, to make this short for your audience, but so they can understand that it's a 13th century church, and people who've been in the church have heard um, the sound of clip-clop, 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 which would be the sound that hearses would have made when they were drawn by horses. Well, there's no – the only road around there is a mud track. There's absolutely nothing that could have made those sounds. That, and we looked. Believe me, we looked. Yeah. I, you know, we walked into the pastures next. We looked all around. But we – Holly heard it a couple of times. I heard it. And then as we were talking about it, this is the part that unfortunately wasn't on camera. We both heard it at the same time. And she looked at me, and I talk about this in the book. She goes, did you? And I went, here? Kind of one of those moments where you both – and we had a number yeah. of those doing the show. And it's like, okay, that's – just weird. How do you explain that? And if it's just one, you can maybe you can rationalize it. If it's just two, maybe you can rationalize it. But when it's happening over and over again, Walter Bosley sort of talks about it. How you can um, kind of when we were because he's involved in the synchronicity thing. Because some one of the sort of at the the penultimate end of the synchronicity run in Los Angeles happened while we were on Radio Misterioso talking about this run of synchronicities that I'd been on, and then they start happening on the radio show to Walter and I, kind of with Greg, sort of 
playing referee and, and observing it all. But I described in the book, you can also go back to the episode on Radio Mysterioso and listen, listen to it happening in real time. But I think, what does Walter call it? The, the nexus of reality or something like that. Or He has a cute phrase for it that um, I think I put in the book. But that's sort of what, when you get involved in these things, you can go 40 years or 40, in my case, I guess it was 42 years, and never really have anything happen or at least not think about it. But then have, because you put yourself in a situation, then it starts to happen. Yeah. Or, as Greg or Walter might have said, it's always been happening, but now you're in a place where you can actually see it. Right, right, So, right. to use the artistic metaphor, um, assume it's like a performance, you can't actually see Cirque du Soleil unless you buy a ticket, right? I mean, you could sneak in, I guess, but you know what I mean. Unless you actually go into the theater or right, into the Getty right. Center or whatever, you're not going to see the Jackson Pollock. You're not going to see Cirque du Soleil. I think the paranormal is the same way. The ticket you have to buy is a willingness to... Um, an openness to have something interact with you. And if you don't have that, um, then I don't think it's going to happen. So you have to actually be willing to have it happen, or you at least have to be aware of the possibility that maybe it is going to happen. So maybe my book, hopefully for some folks, will be a ticket. They'll read it and they'll go, oh, okay, some strange things happened to Kimball, or at least he says they did. We'll assume he's telling the truth. Um, hmm, maybe strange things happen to people, and he's not a guy we ever would have thought that, you know, would have talked about these strange things, but they happened to him. Weird. Well, if they can happen to him, maybe they can happen to me. That's the ticket. Maybe I've opened the door for you so that you have your own experiences because now you're aware that they could literally happen to anyone, including a guy who used to be not an arch skeptic, but certainly would have sat on the more materialistic side of the paranormal fence. Mm. And you can listen to past appearances on Banal of America and other shows where I would have, you know, gone after a whole range of people for being crazy. I don't do that anymore. Because if I, the first person I would have to go after would be me. Oh. And I'd, I'd have to say, Paul, you're crazy because it's, you've had these experiences. I can't explain what they were, but I can no longer deny that I've had them. All right. So in summation, what? The, the conversation about the cursed painting incident was, was sort of a tongue in cheek in a sense. It was a very uncomfortable conversation. Okay. I would I, say, I, I would, I wouldn't say tongue-in-cheek because we... You know, I know. I'm trying to search for the right word. I'm not saying... Yeah. I said sarcastic before, but I, I think I know... There's probably one of those weird German words for it that we don't have in English, you know? Exactly. Like Octun. Yeah, exactly. Octun situation. Right. Um, yeah, I, I'm pretty sure your audience knows from just us butchering it what we're kind of talking about. Yeah, here. exactly. This, this is the problem with verbal communication. Greg and I have talked about it on his show um, and on my own podcast, and I talk about it in the book, that words can sometimes be inadequate because you might not know them or you can't think of them. But I think both you and I and anyone listening to this now kind of understand what we're talking about. It was a very uncomfortable situation. <laughs> Dave and I were very, uh, it's like, you know, we, we didn't want, because he's like me. He's sarcastic, and he, he, he was the guy who'd been to Shocklack, that church where all the weird stuff had happened. He had had, I described this in the book, he had had a time slip experience happen that when he described it to us, um, he and a friend were at the church. They had, the friend had brought a little kid along with them. Uh, Dave wanted, and his friend wanted to talk about something that adults, you know, an adult conversation. So they said, oh, look, little kid, go, you know, run away, play in the cemetery for a bit, and, you know, come back later. So they saw the kid go around the corner of the church and said, you know, rather largest church. And so you could say, well, maybe it would take a kid of that age, you know, four or five, whatever the kid was, uh, 20 or 30 seconds to get around the church, even at top speed, if they were really booting it and the kid had been walking. Boom, kid goes, they notice the kid goes around the corner of the church. Suddenly the kid's at the other corner of the church, the exact opposite. I say to Dave, I say, okay, Dave, 
um, you and I, outside the camera range, I say, we're serious guys, right? You know, we kind of, the paranormal, we're a little, we have this antithetical relationship to, or we don't like to admit, especially Dave, that we've experienced something paranormal. But what the hell do you call that besides paranormal? And Dave's like, right, um, well, you know, I, I don't know. And then he sort of wandered off. <laughs> <laughs> And I interviewed him later for a little podcast, and I said, Dave, I just need you to admit that what happened to you there, if you're telling the truth, if that actually happened, he said, oh, it did. That's paranormal, man. I'm not asking you to tell me what it was. I'm just asking you to admit that was freaky, weird, and paranormal, and you can't explain. He said, right, yeah, you know, yeah. So I said, great, so you believe, you believe that paranormal things happen? He said, well, yeah. So, you know... You still have that kind of, um, any any does, but you still have that sort of, it's hard to kind of admit it, especially when you've spent most of your life immersed in a world that tells you, here's the truth that they give us, this is impossible, this can't happen. And then you realize there's another side of the truth when it happens to you. It is possible, it does happen, I can't explain it, but it interests me and it makes me think. You could almost call it the other side of truth. You could, and if you were really clever, you'd probably write a book with that title. Mm. Oh, wait. Hold on. Copyright it too, folks. Oh. You you can't copyright a title. Oh, good. In fact, there is another book called The Other Side of Truth. Oh, really? Yeah, I didn't realize this, but when it went up on Amazon, I just did a search to see what my book page looked like, and boom. And you realize, uh, is it Beverly Naidu or something? I think it's a kid's book. Oh, that's good. children. And it's quite popular, so it shows up well before mine does. Yeah, but you know, that that can result in some accidental sales. Mostly, yeah, probably, yeah. Oh, I never thought of that. People will look at your book and they'll be like, "Why did my, why did my, you know, my sister-in-law say that I should get this book for my kid?" I don't know what's weird. One thing that I noticed in the book, beyond the shout out to Rainbow Valley in, in Prince Edward Island, which I actually went to also as a child. So I don't think we ran into each other though, because I think you probably went in the seventies, right? Yeah, yeah, I went yeah. in the eighties. For folks who don't know, it's um, Prince Edward Island, a small province in eastern Canada. It's an old uh, Rainbow Valley. They used to have a series of old kind of um, theme parks. Um, not To call them mini Disney's is not even close to accurate. Right, right. So, but Rainbow Valley was... Um, was the coolest of the bunch because they had a it had a um, a flying saucer gift shop. The gift shop was shaped like a flying saucer, and uh, that as a young kid, that was probably the coolest thing I had ever seen. I did have a question about that actually. What now, Rainbow Valley, you said it went out of business uh, at some point uh, in the 90s or the last decade. What became of all the stuff in Rainbow Valley? I don't know, actually. I, I was there, um, when was the last time I was up in the North Shore? Uh, actually, it was this summer, but I didn't drive up as far as Rainbow Valley. It's now a theme, it's a different kind of theme park. They took the property, they turned it into a theme park called Sandspit that has, you know, bumper boats and yeah. go-karts, all the things that kids today like as opposed to the more... Because Rainbow Valley in the old days, it, it was really, here's a bunch of land kids with a flying saucer, saucer theme park, and every now and then we'll put a, a small little sculpture of an, a gnome or an elf, and use your imagination. Yeah. <laughs> that was that was it. And that, you know, that was, Fairyland was the same way and everything, and, and that was fine for us, but now they have to have um, bumper boats and stuff. I don't know what they did with the flying saucer, though. Uh, and that's actually a pretty good question, because it was really cool. I mean, and I think... I, in the book, I don't have a photo of it, but I have a, I, in the footnotes, you know, it's like, here's a link to Rainbow Valley, this site that's right. Yeah, about it. Out, yeah. And so you can, yeah, you can see if you, if you put that link into your Google or whatever, you'll be able to see a picture. And, you know, if you were there, Tim, you must remember the flying saucer too. 
vaguely. I barely remember it because it was in the 80s when I was like a little kid. So, But I do oh, remember okay. being excited about going there and then returning in a, a few years later and, you know, being promised that we could go. So it's, it resonates somehow. So it must yeah, have been well, something people, enjoyable about it, but I don't remember what. It's weird. I had never, um, until I was writing the book, I hadn't, I didn't really think back to too much to my days venturing in PEI as a young kid. But um, when people would ask me, and they have for years, you know, why are you interested? Where'd your interest in UFOs come from? Is it because your uncle is Stan Friedman? Well, sure, that's part of it. But then I thought, you know, even before Stan was my uncle, because he married into the family in the mid seventies, I saw the flying saucer theme you know, gift shop on, in Rainbow Valley. So that problem, it had, if you're a five year old kid and you see this giant flying saucer that you can walk into and, and stuff, that must have some sort of impact on your, right, on, yeah. on what happens to you when you grow up, so. Interesting, yeah. Now the other thing, I, I, I that was sort of a light point, and I, I threw a couple of light points in here, and we've gone quite a ways here on deep discussion. So the, the other thing I, w- I was gonna ask you about, and I remember you, telling me this in 2007 when I hung out with you in Halifax, but you make a point in the book that this is still the case, and that's that you own no cell phone, which I right. find interesting. I was on the no cell phone team for a long time, but eventually, uh, about a year ago, I had to I had to switch sides and, and join up with cell phone people. And I have not. I yeah. have not. It's, it's, a, it's a curse. It's a double-edged sword, really. It's The convenience of it is nice, but... You really do. It's everything I wanted to avoid when I didn't have a cell phone. Well, it's the um, and yeah. This let's not go too long. But for me, it's kind of a wall. It's my one walled-in moment that I still hang on to because if you have a cell phone, especially in my business, people will expect you to be available twenty-four-seven. And maybe I should be. I don't know. But I don't want to be available 24-7. There's this, these wonderful things called answering machines or whatever you want, or callback or whatever. And voicemail. So if I'm not, yeah, voicemail. Um, I actually, here's, here's a, total, a little story um, that uh, has really nothing to do with the paranormal, but it has a little to do with me. And as the book's a bit about me, I'll tell it anyway because it's a cute story. About 10 years ago, my old partner and I, uh, we had a meeting set up with an American producer from Los Angeles who wanted to bring a uh, major, by which I mean, you know, several million dollars production um, up to Nova Scotia. And they, they eventually did. We were, because my former partner and I had both run the tax credit at different times in the Nova Scotia government, um, we were going to be tapped as the service producers, which is to say the locals who would basically run the paperwork for them while they shot the production. It was a lucrative gig. I mean, each of us might have made 50000 I think it was about 50000 So we sat down, had a meeting with the guy, blah, blah, blah. Everything went great. As we're getting ready to leave, or he was getting ready to leave, like, you know, we're, the meeting's breaking up. He looks over and he says, hey, you got your cards, we're exchanging cards. He looks at my card and he says, oh, I don't see your, I don't see your, uh, your cell phone number on here. I had my home, uh, you know, the office phone, yeah. cell phone number. And I said, well, I don't have a cell phone. Um, now he then asked two questions in succession. I've, I've been told later that I could have survived the first answer that I gave, but not the second. So the first question he asks is, well, if you don't have a cell phone, how am I going to get in touch with you if you're not in the office? I said, well, you leave a message. We have a voicemail. I would call you back, you know, as soon as I get back, my partner's often in the office. I mean, um, not a problem, but, um, when I'm out of the office, I'm out of the office. And so that I probably could live with it. But then he says, well, but that's not how we do things in Los Angeles. And I said, well, in case you hadn't noticed, you're not in Los Angeles. 
boom, he was he was literally out the door in about ten seconds. Like he didn't even say goodbye. He stood up, boom, out the door, and my partner was like, "What the fuck?" And you know, the guy who set the meeting was like, "Oh, he's running out the hall. I'll get him back. I'll get him back." He never came back. Wow, was he that did, that stern of a reaction? Yeah. So as I still, um, in fact, I'll be having coffee with my ex partner. We're still friends. Um, uh, we did. We didn't stop being partners because of that, but uh, every now and then he reminds me about that, and uh, and I always say, yeah, it's my fifty thousand dollars story. That's, <laughs> that's me, literally, just being the snarky guy I am, saying, yeah, screw you, and fifty thousand dollars wandered out of my. Uh, my right. Hands. Right. Yeah. Well, I think no, it's, I still it's... I still don't have a cell phone. I, I I hope to never have them, even though I recognize their utility. Right. Right. It's a little it's an interesting area, sort of, to talk about. It's something I've discussed with other guests on the show, and it's like I've railed against because I, I try to at least be. I wouldn't say responsible, but well, I'm certainly responsible. I don't even know how to text. I barely. I think I've texted a few times in my life, but I'm not one of those people who like texts and drives and all that shit. And I actually right. don't even use the cell phone. I say ten percent of the cell phone use is for actual phone calls. So really, for me, it's like a little mini computer to to be online. And that's the double edged sword of it, where it's like I yearn for being away from being online all the time. But at some point, I realize that once you get to be able to be online all the time, it's it's actually it's nice, but you realize you, it's not a, necessarily a good thing. And I've I've seen people that are way off the page with this. The main right. most people I don't want to call them in the mainstream, but you know the the lemmings, if you will, which is you know or I forget what the, the sheeple, as the people in the paranormal community like to rail against people who aren't interested in all this. You know they're on their phone. They're like in the machine now, which is a scary development for the race. Uh, for the human race. That's something, uh, you know, that I said is worth sort of contemplating. Sure. And for, there's uh, a couple of things. One, there's nothing wrong with technology and there's nothing wrong with using technology. So I'm not anti-cell phone. I'm just anti-cell phone for me hmm. uh, because I want, when I am not around the phone, I mean, like I'm on the computer all the time. People say, oh my God, Paul, you live on Facebook. Well, no, when I'm working, I do most of my work on the computer. The internet is always on because, you know, I might be getting an email. I mean, I do take my business seriously. I don't want to lose another $50,000 contract. So if I'm in front of the computer working, I leave the internet on. I often will listen to iTunes or YouTube or a podcast or whatever. And so, yeah, it might look like I'm always on Facebook because I'll take uh, a minute, post a catchy little picture of a cat or something, right. and then go back to work. If you didn't know better, you'd think I'm always on Facebook. But here's the thing. When I leave my office here at home and I go for a walk or I want to go to the mall or a movie or whatever, I don't, I leave the computer, I leave that interconnectivity behind because now I'm not connected. The problem comes not with being connected, but with being constantly connected and feeling like you can't exist if you're not connected. Mm. And that is a generational thing that I've noticed, not my generation, not even yours, you're younger, but a couple of generations behind us. Yeah. The particular, and now it's seeping up into adults where you can see, and I actually write about this in the book, in the, um, it's, it's funny how we wind up there. I put a couple poems in my in the book in the chapter about the human condition. And uh, one of the I was standing in a food court once a couple of years ago uh, in a shopping mall, just waiting for a friend of mine to finish shopping. And I just started observing people, which is you know what artists do, walking by, and virtually every single one of them 
was staring down at a cell. Now, this was around Christmas. Was staring down at a cell phone or whatever you call them. You know, I still call them Palm Pilots. We're still oh, wow. to know about <laughs> So here's 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 a little poetry corner for Banal of America because you brought this up, but it actually this is apropos. So we wound up here by mistake, unless you planned this, in which case, good for you. Um, time stops by the third floor railing next to the food court. No real food actually served. As I endure the gray glop mush of mediocrity, which passes for the human race these days, the screens of their blackberries, the only illumination they'll ever know. If they all drop dead, no one would miss them, least of all themselves. An inconspicuously conspicuous mass of conspicuously inconspicuous consumerites. Legions of the lackluster for the new imperium. Mac always liked that poem. But that idea comes back to that idea of the human condition, that we're disconnected from the things that are important to us. So, in a way... and. I, you know, we're all influenced by different things. I'm influenced a lot by science fiction because I, I like science fiction. I like all fiction. But um, I think science fiction says a lot to us, not necessarily about the future or these strange worlds we imagine, but it's designed to tell us about ourselves. Again, the artist using art as a, a way of a teaching point, if you will, while entertaining. So one of my favorite pieces of science fiction is Battlestar Galactica. Not the old series, although I have a soft spot for it, um, but the reimagined series that was out um, over the last few years. Mm-hmm. And at the end, so it's and it's it's really for television, especially it's really deep stuff. The kind of stuff that makes us think about who we are, relationship with technology. There's also a very strong spiritual element in it, uh, even a religious element, but um, artificial life, all of that stuff. And at the end of it, though, here's what happens. And if you spoiler alert, spoiler alert, if you haven't watched Battlestar Galactica, I'm about to tell you what happens at the end of the show. So they, the whole show, yeah. Oh God! All right. No, no, this this won't take very long. But no, I know. I've just never seen it. You're gonna ruin it for me. Oh. But all right. Oh, well, if you haven't seen it by now, you probably I, – I, I have the DVDs. I tried to get my brother to watch them. I tried to get my um, my former fiancé, who's still my best friend. I still live with her to watch them. Neither one of them have watched Yeah, them. I've never so gone on my way. I could probably watch it on Netflix if I wanted, but I don't. So, exactly. all right, go ahead and spoil it. So they've been fleeing from the Cylons for four years since the fall of humanity, since the Cylons destroyed almost all humans. And there's only about, at the end, 25,000 of them. So they've been fighting, and this technological society, and the Cylons are their creation. And finally, they ally with some of these Cylons, who can resurrect themselves, so there's an element of reincarnation. And they finally arrive at Earth. It's not the original Earth, but it's a different Earth. Long story, doesn't matter. And what it is, is our planet, this Earth. And it's set about 150,000 years in the past. So they get here 150,000 years ago. And you, they get down to the planet and the survivors, there's about, you know, maybe 25,000 of them. It's highly advanced technological society. And they say, well, okay, here's what we're going to do. We'll map out a new city here. We can build here. We can rebuild, blah, blah, blah. And Lee Adama, who's the son of um, Admiral Adama, who's uh, the leader of the fleet, he's, and he's become sort of the president of these colonies, the survivors of humanity, says no. We're going to leave all of that behind. We are going to fly all of our ships into the sun, which is what they do. They set them on autopilot and fly the entire fleet goes into the sun. They divorce themselves from technology, and they say, we're just going to start again. None of that matters. You know, we've been on the run from death for four years. Our entire civilization was destroyed through our own hubris and creating artificial life, all this stuff. Let's just get focus on living and being. He doesn't quite phrase it like that, but that's the point. And the older I get, I don't know when it happens, Tim, but the older I get, the more I become like Lee Adama. That all the things that, you know, I'm 45 now, almost 46, 
the, the things that I've done, I've done a lot of stuff. I've been to a lot of interesting places. I hope to go to a lot of interesting places and do interesting things in the future. But more and more, I joke with my dad. He thinks I'm joking, but I'm not. More and more, I envision a future where I pull a Lee Adama, a Battlestar Galactica, where I just say, you know what? There's a cabin in the woods with my name on it. Uh-oh. I'm heading out, and I'm not coming back. I mean, I'm, I'll go into town to get supplies and stuff like that, but I just want to front the world in a more real way than all this technology. So I'm actually trying to leave. You know, I have a business to run. I have to deal you with You sound like the Unabomber now, but you're getting scared. Well, no, that's bad. That's Yeah, well, you I'm see, not... you're fleeing to a cabin in the woods to get away from technology, but you'll go into town every once again for supplies. It's <laughs> Exactly. It's really... I'm, I'm, did yeah. I say fleeing? I shouldn't have said fleeing. I'm not fleeing. I'm just, <laughs> I would want to move into looking at things in a different way. At some point, you've done it. So I don't, it doesn't interest me. I watch less television than I used to. I could go down a whole range of things. Yeah. And, you know, it's great. I have nothing against that. It's the cell phone thing. I have nothing against cell phones. It's just not for me. And the older I get, the more I've done and put my rear view mirror, the more I look forward to a time when I can just sit and be, as opposed to trying to, you know, move around and be what somebody else wants me to be or be all these other things. Just And so I carve these moments out for myself. And that helped with writing the book. I mean, some of that sleeps into the book, this kind of looking at people who just walk around staring into their blackberries and good for their, or whatever you call them, good for them. It's just, that's not what I want to do. And I don't think that's healthy. And that's not what technology should be about, because I know what most of them are looking at. I've seen the texts that people send. They're not texting about important things like philosophy or any of that. No, no, no. It's 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 base level shit, and, the, yeah. and the, you know the way people write and everything. It's just it's not good. It's not a good. Do thing. you want Fruit Loops or Captain Crunch? I've actually heard that conversation. Now, my mom in the old days, when she would go shopping, she'd write out a list beforehand, and she'd go. And you know what? If she got there and she wasn't quite sure what maybe cereal dad or the kids would want, she'd wing it. She just exactly. she'd make a call. Now I actually heard somebody uh, a couple of years ago call somebody up in the cereal section, and you know, hey, listen, I'm here. Um, do you want like Frosted Flakes, Fruit Loops, Captain Crunch, or what? You know, what was it you wanted? Like, I'm sure, because it's thirty cents less for that. I think, what the hell are you doing? This is not what cell phones were invented for. And then I thought, well, okay, maybe it is. Yeah, maybe it is. That's the weird part. Yeah. So, that, but that's all part of the human condition. Is is un- we can't divorce ourselves from technology. It's not possible, I don't think. But we need to control it. We need to never lose sight of being human. It's one of the areas where I disagreed with Mac. He looked forward to a human, a post-human future where we would meld with machinery and all that sort of stuff. I'm not sure that I'm against it, but at the end of the day, I don't want to be a post-human. I just want to be a better human. And if technology can make us a better human, then I think that's a good thing. But if technology turns us into something else that we're not, if we become slaves to it, then I think that's a bad thing. And I look at technology now and I see us becoming slaves to it. Um, and I don't even think we realize it. And we might not realize it until it's too late. Like the humans in Battlestar Galactica. Exactly, yeah. I don't know. Slaves, I don't know. Addicts, maybe. Well, yes. But addicts are slaves. I mean, I guess you're right. Yeah, I suppose. That's, yeah, we're quibbling. Uh, yeah, that's yeah. semantics. Yeah. 
but ultimately you've made your, you've, and you're a willing slave. You've made, unlike somebody who comes to your village and takes you away to a different continent and makes you a slave, you've actually started drinking or using drugs or technology, and then you've taken yourself further and further and further. You've made yourself a slave to yeah. whatever it is. And, but it's, the, the principle is the same, you know, rise up against whoever your evil master is, in this case you, and uh, liberate yourself as much as you can. Have so, some self-awareness. Bingo. Exactly. I mean, it, 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 weird. It does kind of sound quote, quote, new agey, but both of you, both you and I are, are talking. I actually sort of say that in the book. I say, yeah, I know all of this sounds new agey, but is that a bad thing? Because the alternative would be old agey, right? And if we think about it, what is the old age? What has it gotten us? Where has it taken us? Not to a good place and not to a place that I think fulfills the ultimate potential that I see. This is the positive note that I see in humans, in humanity. I, like you, I do believe that there is intrinsic goodness in us. I just think we've abdicated our responsibility for finding that goodness. And it hasn't helped that really bad humans, and there probably there are a few, have made it harder for us. But we've moved ourselves away as a society from that. But I do see that we can move our this new age. I'm all for it because the old age hasn't worked out all that well. Indeed. Mm. But old age itself, I feel like you're ready for it. You're going to be great at it. I'm already halfway there. Exactly. I'm going to already be there. I'm a curmudgeon. I've become a you know a friendly curmudgeon. You must own a rocking chair. You seem like the type. I'd like to, but no, I have a papasan. What's a papasan? That's a big cushy wicker chair with a big fluffy thing that ah, okay. right. fulfills the same function. You just kind of sit in it and go, oh, this is nice. Without uh, the rocking, without, though. You don't have the rocking. No, I don't have the rocking, although I can rock in my mind and roll, too. Oh, yes. I mean, <laughs> all of this is a personal journey, too. And the, uh, I talk about this in the book. A, lot, a fair bit of it is personal. There's a chapter on... On, uh, I can't even remember. I think it is the Eternal Now. I'm not sure of that chapter. But when I talk about a friend of mine who died when I was young, uh, mm, college yes. friend in high school, every year, you know, every year I go over to his grave and uh, I sit down. I listen to music. It's funny because uh, it is the passage of time in the book. I mentioned when I started doing this in the 80s, I was listening to my Walkman, so I'd have a cassette tape. I always take Simon and Garfunkel's uh, album with uh, Hazy Shade of Winter on it. And uh, I, sit, I would sit down. Now I go over with my MP3 player, and, you know, I have 3,000 songs on it, but I'm still picking the same song. I sit down, listen. I read from some Camus, uh, Albert Camus, uh, to him. I do that every year. But he died in a car accident two, uh, three years after I had a car accident that probably should have killed me. Um, I got very lucky. And so I kind of say, look, you know, I like to think, and he was a really sweet guy, far sweeter than I was. I mean, I was a a hellion, arrogant, hubristic. Yeah, you're a little prick. Yeah, and and some people listening to this would go, "Was wait a second. <laughs> and I would be one of them. I'm, there's still elements of that, a lot of elements of that within me. You know, it's the sort of love hate thing that you put on your knuckles, the Johnny Cash thing, where you struggle with those demons within you, the hmm. good and the bad. But that's part of the human journey. But I say, look, if there are alternate universes, I like to think that Gil Ladder, my friend that died. He's sitting in some alternate universe. He survived and I didn't. And he's sitting on next to my grave right now, listening to the same music and reading the same, or maybe something different. But, you know, it worked out better for him, and, and maybe that would be a more just resolution. But that's that process of examining who we are, where our journey has taken us as individuals, and where it's going to take us in the future as individuals. And if all of us as individuals undertake that process, then I think as a collective, we'll be okay. 
the problem is that most of us as individuals don't think that way. Um, and I, I wish more did. Don't we all? Well, I'm sure all well, the people listening do. Well, most of them. Some of and them. If you, and if you <laughs> do think that way, buy my book. No. <laughs> there you go. Now you're getting the hang of being an author. Yes. Well, uh, I've learned. I've learned from the best, you know, Nick and others. So I got and, one. And these are, what's that? I was just going to say these are themes too. That the other book that I published so far is Matt, um, I got the rights from Max Parent, sort of the. Um, Whoever saved Kafka's writing, I don't know, with the guy who did, but I've become that guy to Max Kafka in a sense. So I've, I'm going to be publishing the first volume is out, uh, 2003, 2004, but I'm going to publish the, his blog, The Posthuman Blues. Um, a, because you just don't know how long something's going to be up on the internet, but B, because there's a lot of, you know, it's a daily journal. There's a lot of stuff that slipped in there that People, it's like, ah, skip over this. Don't want to, that video doesn't even, it's not even up anymore that Mac posted of some YouTube video or something. But if you pull out, if you, if you edit out all of that stuff and then just focus in on what Mac was writing in one place, that's what I've done with these, these series of books, the first one of which is out. And you realize that these are the kinds of things that he was talking about too. Um, you know, the human condition. He was very, in a way, misanthropic. Um, if you read the book, <laughs> if you think you knew Mac, um, read the book, you'll realize, uh, even those of us who really knew him, it's like, oh, this is the first time we kind of all got it in one place. And then you go, right, yeah, he was really cranky you know, about, <laughs> about all this. But it, it really is a, a very, I think, important historical document at the time because you have a bright guy talking about the way things were in the 20, first decade of the 21st century. It's a shame he's not, a, it, I mean, shame doesn't even begin to cover it. But he had so many things to say to, to sort of describe the human experience for people of our age, that general age group at, at that period of time. And he was talking about these same kinds of things that, that you and I are talking about here. Where, where have we been? Where are we now? And where do we need to be going? And he had different answers in, some, in many cases than I did, or at least different perspectives. Um, and so to be able to do something like that, I mean, that's, you know, why you start a publishing company. Indeed. All right. Yeah. Yeah. That's probably apropos of nothing, but I did want to mention the post-human blues. I was going to mention it. What are you? Oh, Jesus. What kind of radio know. host do you think I am? I don't know. Jeez. A good, a good one. Thank you. Then you should have known I would mention it. Well, okay. Nah, fine. <laughs> just, just edit the show and stick that answer at the end after you've asked the question. <laughs> then, then we'll lose this fantastic exchange. Um, okay. Now, I have one more big point here, uh, which is partially why I wanted to go, you know, longer than normal here, because I know that this is going to open a, a whole doorway, which is in the quote. Um, Uh-oh. It, it, into a conversation that, that could go for a while, so I figured uh, I needed to get more time from you. But uh, now I'm going to read it. Uh, uh, you say in the book that you're convinced of of what happens uh, after you die, essentially. You become convinced of this, and, and I'll read the quote so it doesn't sound so cut and dry. So here's what you say. Many people have described seeing the white light during what have become known as near-death experiences, where a sort of doorway opens that we can go through. This could well be the moment of transition to the next stage of our development, which I'm convinced would be a collective consciousness where we leave our individuality behind and become one with each other in a being that would be by its very nature empathic and therefore moral. I'm always struck, I guess you could say, by uh, certainty in authors or in researchers and uh 
you know, I'm always weary of it. And, and, and it just stood out to me because I don't think he really went sort of full bore on anything in the book beyond that where you say you're convinced of something. So why, what makes you convinced of this? See, now I'm, I've actually got the book in front of me, and I, I do sort of – well, obviously, I do remember that. I'm just trying to find it so that I can place it in the context. I know the chapter it's in, too. I just uh, I can't find it. Oh, well, because um, it would be easier to talk about it if I could actually find it. Ah, Tim, you're supposed to send me these questions first. I don't the, do the that. Idea, no. Well, I don't know how certain I am. I mean, you know, that's I put that forward as – if you read back further into that chapter, uh, which I believe is the chapter on reincarnation, I'm pretty sure it is. You know, it's like, well, okay, what do we, what happens to us after we die? It's on well, page 164, if that helps. Oh, thanks, man. That makes it, that'll make it easier. 128, 208, 160. Oop, there we go. Sorry, folks. We'll it's all right. A moment here. And uh, I'm not, uh, I'm not uh, even, I guess I'm not even saying, oh, you're wrong, I disagree, or anything like that. I'm asking, what led you to become convinced? Well, okay, it's in page. It's on page one sixty four of the version I sent you, but it's not on page one sixty four of the actual book. I must have renumbered the pages after I finished the ver- the draft I sent you. Um, anyway, I know what you're talking about. Well, if you look at it, sort of, let's assume that we die and there is something beyond death. So this is kind of how I come to the conclusion that I came to, which is the same kind of conclusion that I come to when I say that whatever they are, they're not here to do us harm. They're not here to ignore us. People might disagree with that, but here's the process I come to. Right. So there's something after death. Well, okay. Does Tim Benal continue on as Tim Benal after death? So basically it's, you know, it's just like you woke up in a different bed, but you're still you, and maybe you're wearing a different coat. Mm. But you're still this, and this is kind of, I think, how most people, certainly in the Western world, think about it. They say, oh, we'll meet grandma and grandpa and my brothers and sisters in heaven and all that sort of thing. And we'll basically just be ourselves, right? If you read DC Comics, when you, you see that all their characters eventually die and come back to life, and be like, oh, look, here's Green Arrow. He's in heaven dressed as Green Arrow. There's the <laughs> Flash. Who's all, I remember this, this issue. There's Green Lantern and the Flash. They're also in heaven, and they're still dressed like the Flash. And what the hell? That, that's I don't even think they're trying to make a point here. They're taking this literally. Yeah. And that just, it's hard to explain. That just doesn't make any sense to me. What does make sense to me? Oh, I remember. I'm trying to remember all this. I sort of remember how I came to this. When I was at the lecture by Michio Kaku, which I talked about in the first chapter, and he was describing um, communication in email and ba- how basically email was created by the military um, to sort of compartmentalize various aspects of communication then can all be reassembled later. I've done terrible disservice to that, but I'm much more coherent in the book because I literally quote from him. So there you go. Yeah. Well, then I said, well, wait a second now. What if we are the information in sort of a meta sense here? So the, his example of the email, which he was using in a different context, I said, well, wait, let, let's look at ourselves as the information. We're the information. We're all constituent parts of one whole message. So Tim Benal is a teeny little piece of that part. Paul Kimmel's a little piece of that part. Um, Greg Bishop, Chris McBride, and uh, who's somebody I mentioned in the book, both you and I know, were all, for good or ill, pieces of that email, if you will, that cosmic email. Right. Well, right. So when we die, that's the email being 
<laughs> the, I'm talking about death as an email. That's the the D mail, the death mail. Yeah, that's the D mail. There you go. Yeah, being reassembled. And so I, I talk about reincarnation, about how I think we, you know, we can come back and forth, live different lives, live different experiences. Maybe we're bats. Maybe we come back as as paramecium to get the full range of possible experience. And then when that's all done. When and you know it's it's like the old Star Trek episode in Voyager where they go to the Q continuum and and Q says, "Look, we're immortal. I've been the dog. I've been the scarecrow. I've been the door. I've been everything." When that's all over, well, okay, what's left? And that's when you you reintegrate to the whole, um, and you become you you know you become part. You realize, hey, I'm going back to the message, and then 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 it gets really. I don't even talk about that. What happens after that? I don't know, but. If that happens, if there is a collective consciousness, doesn't forget how I got there, but let's just, people do talk about a collective consciousness. If it does exist, I am absolutely convinced it would be empathic and, and what I call moral, which is to say yeah. good, because I can't see any other possibility. Because if, I, if I can feel somebody else's pain, unless you're really, really, really evil, and I just don't think there are that many really, really, really evil. I'm not even sure there are any evil people in the world. If you take this idea that we have to live all experiences, well, at some point you're going to be Hitler and so am I, or John Paul Casey or whatever. If you view that as, as that idea that we have to do everything, well, you'll be Gandhi and Hitler at some point in the continuum. But if you're, if you can actually feel the pain that's being caused, you wouldn't cause it. Because, um, you know, I wouldn't mm, yeah. cause pain to myself, um, or at least I wouldn't, especially if I was smarter than I probably am. So it's this, you know, if we're all in it together, then you would you would be empathic. You would have this understanding, uh, a much greater understanding than just an individual would, because you could see the entire message, first of all. You'd realize there is a message, and individuality isn't it, that the individuals are just part of it. And some of my American friends who are the more libertarian types would be tearing their hair out right now. But... Well, that's, that's the part that I... Now, I say I don't disagree with you, but I have trouble with that proposition because of what you just said. I mean, I, I, I have, I don't know, an intellectual disconnect with the idea of leaving the individuality behind. It's a bit... Well, uh, but that's subversive to me. Yeah, well, it, it is very, in a sense, subversive. People, oh, it's communism or whatever. It's not even communism. It, it is very subversive to the Western way of thinking. It's not subversive to um, the Eastern mentality. And I use East. I, I think everybody listening knows what I mean when I say Eastern mentality. You know, um, uh, Buddhism and uh, those traditions coming yeah. from that part of the world. So it is not foreign to them. It is foreign to us. Because we view the individual as the sort of, that's it. It's the beginning, it's the end. But that, if you, even if you look, and I've spent a lot of time, a lot of my family are, are Christians. Um, my grandfather was a Reformed Baptist minister. I'm well aware of, of these things, even if I'm an agnostic when it comes to any of this stuff, in the particular traditions. If you look at original, the original teachings of, uh, Jesus, as far as we can tell, that they are actually accurately relayed to us now, then you you don't see an emphasis on the individual. You see an emphasis when they're talking about things. And again, there will be people who disagree with me, and that's fine. But when they're talking, what is the kingdom of heaven? The kingdom of heaven, even within the Christian tradition, is not about all of us going to heaven and you know with our possessions 
here's where individuality leads you. Hey, I'm Mitt Romney. Uh, I'm worth $250 million. And when I go to heaven, I'll still be Mitt Romney, and I'll still be worth $250 million. What? No, you won't. Um, that's where the individual <laughs> analysis leads you, this idea that you will still be in heaven who, or in the afterlife, whatever you want to call it, who you were in this life. That is so counterintuitive to everything that every major spiritual and religious tradition actually says about what the afterlife might be about, that you would have to, if you really, if you really took what they said seriously, you would say, no, that doesn't make any sense. I like to tell friends, to, usually to annoy them, that Jesus was a communist. And they go, what? Oh. Especially American friends. They go, well, have you actually read the Bible? The bits that Jesus, you know, I mean, I'm not talking about the book Leviticus. I'm talking about the stuff Jesus actually said. Wait, you got a problem with Leviticus? No, I'm just not yeah, messing with I'm not a big fan of, uh, of the Old Testament. Although, you know, it has its poetic value. but It, it has its begat. moments, I agree. Yeah. Too, too much begatting. It's like watching a porn film. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of begatting going on. But, you know, the idea, when you listen to him, he's, if what he actually says, he said, it's the kind of thing that, and there's a, in Canada, there's a very long tradition, but also in the United States, it's buried now, you folks don't talk about it, of Christian socialism. Um, our primary socialist, even our left-wing NDP, it's now called the New Democratic Party up here in Canada, they don't like to talk about it, they're embarrassed by it. But the socialist movement in Canada was primarily founded, not solely, but primarily founded by Christian ministers. Um, most of the great early leaders of what was then known as the CCF were either ministers or uh, involved in church, or they definitely came from a Christian tradition. And they looked at, and the Catholics have it too, these were Protestants, but the Catholics have it too, liberation theology, which you saw in, the, in, in, in action in the Central America in particular in, say, the 1980s. Um, much more what you would call a socialistic or communistic way, a communal, let's call it communal, way of looking at humanity, that we're all interconnected, we're all linked together. That was the message um, of love, that universal love that Jesus brought to us. Whether or not you believe he was the Son of God, that was his message. And that's been lost. And I do, you know, there, there are elements of Marxist theology, or not Marxist theology, well, yeah, I guess theology, but Marxist um, philosophy that seep into the book. I mean, I, I quote from uh, Guy Debord and, and Ralph and Ijem and, and these French sort of situationalist Marxist philosophers from the 1960s. Uh, I don't want to get into that at great length here, but... Thank you. Here, yeah, there you go. But it relates to the human condition. People should be reading this stuff. I encourage the society, the spectacle, and the revolution of everyday life. But this this idea that we are all interconnected, this is not a new age idea. This is an old age idea that we've just forgotten. And the Marxist deconstruction of this individualism that you talk about that has become so much the, the center focus of American life and um, to slightly lesser degree, but I would say life in, in Western society completely, stems back to the Protestant work ethic. So, well, okay, I used to teach when I was a graduate assistant, a uh, grad student in history, teaching assistant. I used to teach classes on, um, among other things, the Protestant work ethic. Well, where does it come from? Well, in the old days, before Calvinist theology, before free will, um, the idea of, because in Christianity now everybody talks about free will. Oh, we're all, you know, we make our own choices. Didn't always used to be that way. The original Protestants had this idea um, where they would say, look, we have an elect. And only some of us are getting into heaven. And God's already figured it out. It was called predestination. So he already knows who you are, who's getting into heaven. When I used to, I'd do a class and there'd be, say, 30 students in front of me. I'd say, look, here's the easy way to explain. There's 30 of you, right? All right. 
you guys move your desk a little to the left, okay, keep moving, keep moving, you two stay where you are, keep, okay, and so there's 28 of you over here, and there's two of you over here, right, the two of you over here are going to heaven, the 28 over you over here are damned, and there's nothing you can do about it, because I'm God, and I've already decided that, and they go, mm. what? I say, that's the way it used to be, but here, here's what that would lead to, you guys, now let, put your desk back, now, everybody get up, move around, take a different desk, sit down, fine. Don't worry, Jimmy. She's not going to steal your, your notebook. It's fine. And then I'd say, well, okay, wait a second now. How do you know amongst the 30 of you which ones I'm going to choose to go to heaven? I've already chosen. You know I've chosen, but you, you don't know who I've chosen. And they go, well, I, I don't know. I'm sure you've chosen me. I say, well, here's how they figured out that you would know. And this is where the Protestant work ethic, by and large, came from. Whoever had basically the most goodies – Whoever was the most successful, had the most money, had the biggest house, had the nicest, whatever. Well, clearly God has favored you, right? That is the sign. Monetary wealth, material wealth, success. That is the sign of God favoring you. So that means you're one of the elect. And they go, okay, yeah, I, I guess. And I say, well, don't, don't guess because that's where it came from. And so then what people and it's very clever. You know, if you want to talk about conspiracies and the powers that be, maybe somebody did cook this up. If you want people to work harder, this is what you do. You convince them, work harder, earn, be part of the system, and then accumulate all sorts of stuff. And that will be a sign of God's favor. You actually, even within free will Christianity today, you, it is still the way people seem to talk in the U.S. megachurches and all that. Even though they've allegedly long since left Calvinism and predestination behind, they still use that language. It still infuses our very society, where the more we earn, the more we, quote, quote, succeed, that is a sign of God's favor. And that is where it comes from. And that is counterintuitive to everything that you will find in the Gospels in terms of what Jesus was actually teaching. It wasn't about acquiring things. It wasn't about that kind of stuff. It was about spiritual salvation. There was a, supposedly a very real divorcing of the, the our world, you know, render under Caesar what is Caesar, and then render under God what is God. But we... In that, in that time period when all of this, when they created this Protestant work ethic, they mixed it up. And so that's what's left. That's what we've been left with. And that is to, to me at least, when I look at it, to no small part where this obsession with the individual comes from. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with, I like being an individual, but I also believe that as individuals, we should also be aware that there might be something bigger than us. We might be part of something bigger than us. And we might be returning someday to something that's bigger than us. And so I don't have that obsession with individuality that maybe a lot of other people do. I suppose, yeah. I mean, but you're, the, you use the Mitt Romney example, and then you r rolled it into this Protestant thing. And But I guess the my concern about the individuality has way less to do, because, listen, I don't have a pot to piss in or a window to throw it out, so I'm not worried about bringing my pot with me to fucking... Heaven. Charming. Yeah, thank you. Well, it's late. Yeah, yeah. yeah <laughs> it's been a long conversation. I forgot people were actually still listening to us. Yeah, no, that's true. Um, so, I, but, but it's more just sort of like, part of me sees your point of view in a way, because I, I, I want to say, you know, if you're all part of this homogeneous collective consciousness, then where is the source of new ideas? Where is, you know, if, 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 
John Lennon and George Harrison are both part of the collective consciousness now. We're not getting the, the interplay of ideas, in a sense. But I suppose what you're, I guess what you're trying to say is that you've evolved to the point where you don't need the interplay of, you don't need further learning? No, no. Um, the collective consciousness, or whatever you want to call it, is something happening after death, happening after many reincarnations or many trips through this world far down in the future. As long as we're here, yeah, we're individuals. We, I think at times, you know, we're... Do- I'm trying to think of the best example. What's the best example? Uh, I can't... I was going to say a litter of kittens, but that's... <laughs> That's not what I'm trying to think of. You know, you, you take a cat out, then you put it back. No, that doesn't make any sense. Um, well, what's, uh, I don't know. Well, let me jump in and just say that 12, 12 eggs, maybe, and then you the, put them and you scramble them together, and they're back to being one egg. Is that what you're trying to say? Because I, I, that doesn't sound very appealing to me, because it's like there's... It's not it's, meant it's to be not, appealing. Well, then I don't like it. It's bad. <laughs> it's It's... It's the way that I think it is. It actually should be very appealing. Ah, I know the example that I, I didn't write in the book, but I, some of the artwork I use actually, sex, there we go. I, at the end of the day, if you want to make something appealing, bring it down to sex, because that'll work for everyone. So, here's, here's how I would explain it, I guess. Let's assume that you can distill all of humanity to two people. Let's assume one of them is Tim Benal. And let's assume one of them is uh, Jessica Alba. I don't know. I'm just going to pick somebody. All right, I'll, I'll take would, it. I'll take it. You would probably consider her hot. Fine. So that's it. That's humanity. Now, Tim Banal has uh, two choices. Tim Banal can remain an individual by himself, or Tim Banal can choose to join with the rest of humanity. That's now, Jessica Alba? Both, yeah. Okay. Because that's a good thing. The rest of humanity is a good thing. All right. And you can experience so much more when you join with Jessica, the rest of humanity, Alva, or Paulina Peritzikova or whoever. Who's uh, Tom Brady married to? Giselle Bunchen? I like Kate Upton myself. She's uh, That would be my, my woman du jour right now. Mine would be Melanie Griffith from the Something Wild film days, but that's very 1980s, so okay. nobody would get that. But this idea... I, I don't understand why people I, – well, I do understand it, but I don't understand it at the same time. It's just like people tell you it's bad to join, that losing your – that you would be losing your individuality. Let me try this, that you would be losing your individuality. I don't see it that way. I see it as enhancing your um, being, let's call it that. So you're adding – you, by rejoining, let's call it the collective, if you were to rejoin the collective, you would be bringing your own experiences, which could have happened over many different lifetimes, and enhancing the collective. Whereas by joining the collective, you now have access to everybody else's experiences too. To so it's like going into a library. Yeah, you, I've written one book. Nick, even Nick, at his most prolific, has written what fifteen, maybe or twenty. Or it's over twenty now. Yeah, yeah, maybe he's written. Let's say he's written twenty-five. Okay. Nick could walk into the uh, New York City library with his 25 books, stick them on a shelf, and it would be an infinitesimal corner of all the books that would be in that library. So if you're Nick, what are you going to do? Just take your 25 books and say, well, that's it. I, I only care about my 25 books. No, you want to read as many because you can learn things from all these other books. But you have to go to the library or you have to, you know, whatever, take the online. You have to make an effort. 
So call it a library or call it uh, having sex with Jessica Alba or whatever, but it's joining. There is nothing wrong with joining. There's nothing wrong with being part of something bigger than just yourself. And to me, that does not mean you are losing your individuality, which is not what I was trying to say, but it means you are enhancing your individuality, your being. Um, and I think, again, like the whole science versus spirituality thing, the two are not mutually incompatible. But people don't like, certain people, the powers that be, shall we call it, don't like the idea of people thinking about the greater good, the common wheel, um, you know, things beyond just themselves, for a whole host of reasons, not the least of which is they might actually start questioning, hey, what the hell are you doing to the greater good, the common wheel? The, the human condition. These things don't make sense. This obsession with wealth, this obsession with material goods, this obsession with all of these sort of peripheral things. We need to think of, and no, 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 no. We don't want that because we really are selfish, greedy people. So they like it when you think as individuals because, and at, to the exclusion of thinking of the, of, to thinking that you, you can only be an individual. You can't be part of a, of something bigger. It boggles my mind, Tim, when I hear people rail against government. And they say, government is evil. Well, first of all, government's like science. It's not, it's not a Cthulhu-like monster hiding over our heads. It's, it's a collection of people and interests and stuff. They go, government is evil. And it's just, it crushes the rights of the individual and blah, 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 blah. And I just sit back and I go, do you understand what government is? It's us. We're government. People, like, it's not this, this mythical entity. It's people. Coming right, together, right. and when people come together, they can do bad things and they can do good things. But it's nothing to be afraid of. It's not the enemy because if you say government is the enemy, then we are the enemy because we are the government. And if you're not part of it, if you've divorced yourself from that, well, that's on you. Because you know, if you look and you say, well, it's doing things that I don't want it to do. Well, really, yeah, that's because you're not participating. You just stand back and go, blah. So when I talk about this collective consciousness, I've just compared the the ultimate in human achievement beyond death to the American government. But there you go. Right, it, right. And I think, well, just I think we can maybe find some common ground here on our points of view because you use the example of Nick at the New York Public Library. I guess what concerns me about the collective consciousness concept, but by your example, maybe you're leaving a loophole that will make me feel better, is that, that, you're, that you're saying, Nick, in this instance, this example, still retains, I guess I'm not even concerned about individuality as much as personality. Do you know what I mean? It's like I don't want to die and join up with this collective consciousness and lose perspective, if you will. Yeah, I can't, I can't make that any better for you, Tim, because... What is your personality? Your your personality is okay. Who who are you? Who is how old are you now, Tim? Thirty. Thirty three. Thirty three. Fine. So you're thirty three. I'm forty six. Um, who are you now? You're the thirty three year old Tim Benal. Is that the same Tim Benal personality wise as the five year old Tim Benal? The ten, fifteen, twenty year old as the eighty year old right, Tim right, Benal yeah. will hopefully be. It's not. It is you at a moment of time. At 46, 45, I'm not quite 46, if I was to travel back in time, and I talk about this in a roundabout way in the book, if I was to go back to that 20-year-old me who existed 25 years ago, I'm not sure that that me would recognize this me. I'm not even sure. I mean, physically, obviously, I'm the same per I've aged, but this is the same body. It's just older. But what's inside it? I'm not that person anymore. Um, I am the accumulation of a series of, of events and experiences 
that has changed me and will continue to change me as long as I live. But I'm not that person. I'm not, and I'm certainly, I was at my old school when I was in elementary school. I just went for a walk the other day. Um, and so for the first time in a couple of years, I went to my old stomping grounds when I was seven and eight, used to play in the woods and everything. And I was walking through them and I thought, this is really cool and it's great. But I thought about who I was back then and I am so far from who that person was. All right. Well, maybe, maybe a better word instead of personality would be sentience. Well, yeah, I don't think we would ever lose our sentience, although... Then I um, feel better, I think, okay. Then I'll I join think when you say, I, think, <laughs> I think when you say sentience, you're still trying to... Like, who is Tim Benal? There, If you live to be... Uh, what is it? Say you live to be 100. Let's just... Because I think the math is easy. How many days would that be? 100 by 365. Um, can you do the math? That's 36,500 days, right? Or is that... Yeah. Uh, yeah, what, plus leap years, but go on. Sure. Let's just say you live to be 36,000 days long. Well, you know how many Timbinals there are? There's 36,000 of them. And even within those 36,000 days, you know, you can do the math on the minutes and seconds. Right, you right, can right. Li- every second, there's a different you um, in a very infinitesimal sort of way. But if you want to look at it in a more macro way, let's just say every day there's a different you. And that you is is different than the one who existed the day before, and it's different than the one that existed the day after. So every day, in a sense, in a sense, Tim Benal is joining a collective consciousness. You know what that collective mm. consciousness is? Tim Benal. So you're joining all the individuals that you've been in every day of your life is joining each day. You join the Tim Benal collective consciousness. And then the next day, when you wake up, assuming you actually sleep, when you wake up, you're a new Tim Benal. And you build again on the, the Tim Benal that existed before. All right. And, and you talk about personality. Um, it gets into memory. How much of your childhood can you actually remember? Most of us can't remember very much. We remember certain incidents, things that for good or ill will stick out. Right, right, right. But by and large, most of it is lost to us. Well, that Paul Kimball or that Tim Vinal is for all intents and purposes dead. And there's this one that's living now. A little bit of that old one has survived, but this is a new one. Well, to me, that's sort of what death and potentially moving to this collective consciousness would be like. A lot of what we think we are now, we would leave behind, but we would gain so much more um, that it would be just like waking up uh, to a new day. All right. There's some very new agey stuff that I'm pretty sure most people who know me would never have expected to hear from me. But well, I'm glad I asked. I'm glad I said we needed more time because we that whole they knew the old, line they of knew conversation the old took like a half hour. <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah. Like I said, I ramble, man, but that's what it all is to me. It's like a, a beat novel where it really is, you know, you just kind of ramble, you do these thought experiences, these stream of consciousness things, and who knows where it's going to take you. But just the act of doing it, the, I sort of write in the book, the journey is the destination. I really do believe that. So many people are focused on getting somewhere. I'm just focused on getting on the road, and I have no idea where I'm going to wind up. Um, I don't have a destination in mind, but I just kind of hope that the trip, and so far it has been, is interesting and enlightening, and uh, in and of itself, the trip is worthwhile, no matter where you wind up. So if at the end of the day, there's nothing after we die, like literally you just, the computer turns off and you're done, um, well, then I'll be no worse off than when I was born, because I can't remember anything before birth. I can barely remember anything before, you know, yesterday. So <laughs> the older I get, that the more true that is. Um so I'm not too worried about what happens after death, but I like to think that you know maybe uh, I continue on. But if I don't, then it's been a good it's been a good trip. All right. So well, that, that's a 
that's a good note to sort of segue here into the uh, closing moments. Where can folks get the books? Do you have a preference for where they get the books? I know you've self-published this, so it's it's uh, sometimes that can be a, a difference between quite a bit of money between where you know if somebody gets it on Amazon, next thing you know you're only getting a different percentage than if they just bought it through your website. So what's the best way for people to get it? Um, honestly, whatever's the easiest way for them to get it. So I'm not concerned about. Yeah, okay. <laughs> no, don't do that. <laughs> the easiest way that they can legitimately pay for it under the legal uh, commercial <laughs> regime that we have created for ourselves, which I have to live in. So Exactly. You know, you can get it from Amazon. Uh, you can get it if you go to uh, my company's website, uh, redstarfilmtv.com. Go to the Red Star Books section. You can buy it from there, from our storefront. Uh, those are the, it'll be available. I've just signed a, an agreement with a major, uh, European ebook sort of on, um, electronic distribution company. So all of my books will be available eventually, despite the fact I hate ebooks. I, but personally I hate them, but I recognize a lot of people like them. So, uh, sometime in early 2013, both my book and uh, the first volume of the Post-Human Blues will be available in ebook. And that's my plan. For any book that my company releases, it'll have an initial print run of a, anywhere from a day to a year, however long I want to just keep it in print. But then it'll go into electronic format on wider distribution. So Nice, nice. It's uh, it's my little, you know, it's my old school thing. I believe books should be held in your hand and you should turn pages, you know, like paper. But I also understand that that's not the way the world is trending. So, you know, you got to keep up with the times in most ways. It is a business. You know, at the end of the day, I have to run a business and I have to report to people um, who are part of that business. So, yeah, sure. And beyond that, what's next for you? What's uh, well, I guess I mean, I didn't want to really get too much into this, but you you did talk about the MacBook. So what's you're, you're working on sort of what's I guess. On a personal level, obviously the the death of Mac really touched you very deeply. I mean, what is it like to sort of be? I mean, and you've taken on the the role of sort of his intellectual caretaker, if you will. So, I mean, what's that? How does that make you feel? I mean, I don't want a Barbara Walters moment here, so you, you know, just try and keep it together. But you know what I mean. Um, a couple of things. One, it's uh, it makes his parents happy and they're good people. I'd never met his, I haven't met his dad, I should say, but when I was in Kansas City interviewing him, um, first time I met him in person back in 2006 for best evidence, I didn't meet his mom. She's a lovely person. I correspond with her on a fairly regular basis. Um, and I know that they, uh, you know, without going into the nature of the private conversation, they were happy to let me do it. And I think they're pleased with the way the first volume at least turned out. Um, for me doing it, and it took me about a month to edit the first two years of his blog down into book format is it's a sort of, you know, really divorcing myself from having known him. It's a book that I would read if I had never heard of this guy, I had never met him. And somebody had said, Hey, here's a book about a guy who was writing a, you know, it's kind of a diary like Samuel Pepys. I think it's, I was going to use that example earlier. Yeah. Yeah. The great diarist of, of the, from Britain um, in the 17th century. I think it was the 1600s, so the 17th century. I, you know, Max, he's, it's not quite like that, but it is kind of like that. It's a document of the early 21st century. I think it is important from a historical point of view. So the historian in me, the person interested in that era and how certain, how people thought, I would be interested in it. But beyond all of that, it is, it was actually like sitting down and having him sitting on my, sh- you know, next to me 
because uh, I, when he was here, when we were running doing time, he stayed in my room and I slept out in the living room. So he was actually, my office is in my room, my bed that, don't take this the wrong way, that he slept in was right behind. He would get up and I would come in and I would be doing work, you know, checking email and he'd sit down next to me. And it was actually kind of like I was, he was there and I was talking to him and listening to him. Um, because when you edit a book, I, I kind of say in the introduction to the book, there's a bit of me in there. Um, I made changes to some of what he wrote. I corrected grammar and things because you're, when you're blogging, even he and his blog said, look, I'm not going to be terribly concerned with grammar. So to put it in print format for people who didn't know him, for people maybe 10 or 15 years down the road who are reading it, you know, Mac would want it to be in a readable format. So in some cases, you know, changes and footnotes and stuff. So a bit of me seeps into it. But as I say at the end of the book, that's probably fair. I think that's fair. You can't avoid that when you're an editor because he was very much a part of my life and my story, and I was part of his life and his story. So it just kind of makes sense to me that a little bit of me would seep into his book because a whole lot of him has seeped into mine. So, yeah, it was like – it was great. It was like hanging out with my old friend uh, again and, you know, never got maudlin. I'd be sitting there and listening to R.E.M. and the Smiths as I was editing it, and and yeah, it was uh, it was a lot of fun. Was, uh, I I enjoyed doing that more than I enjoyed writing my own book, frankly. Mm. And I enjoyed writing my book. Don't get me wrong, but I really enjoyed the process of collaborating one last time. Well, yeah. not one last time. I'll be doing it again and again, but collaborating again with the. <clears throat> excuse me. I'm not choked up. I'm actually just drawing because I've been talking. Collaborating with a guy who was one of my you know three or four best friends. Well, it's an admirable thing that you've done, so, and I, I wish you the best. And as I said, you can use, uh, I'm far too lazy to do a transcript of my interview with Mac, but if you ever have time and you want to use it, go for it. Yeah, well, but again, you know, it, I'm far too lazy. It pro- it probably pop, it'll probably pop up in subsequent years because he'll be referencing, he hadn't done a lot of radio appearances, uh, in, by you know, around 2000. He hadn't even released uh, after the Martian Apocalypse. Uh, it came out in 2004, so he's writing about the process of writing it and then releasing it, and a bit of that shows up in the book. So, weirdly enough, I went through the index. The name that pops up the most often in the index is George W. Bush because he was writing around the time of the Iraq War oh, wow. and the, uh, the 2004 election. And it's... There are paranormal elements in the book. He talks about the paranormal in, in a number of places, but he talks far more about politics and society and just his day-to-day life. And to me, that's the far more interesting stuff um, because you can read his paranormal. You can listen to your shows or Greg when he's on Radio Mysterios or, or when he was on Coast to Coast, and there he's really solely talking about the paranormal. Right, right, right. With but the blog, it's like a personal sort of right. He journal. Was a, he was a, yeah, he was a great commenter on, uh, or commentator rather, on just life and uh, and culture and all those sorts of things. And so the book's actually more about that than it is as paranormal thinking, even though there is some paranormal stuff in there too. It's almost an evolution too, I think. Yeah, well, it is. It is. I had my friend Aaron Gullius, who never met Mac, but he's a historian, teaches in the United States, and uh, who has a. You should have him on your show next year because he'll have a new book out called um, "Extraterrestrials and the American Zeitgeist." Oh, that sounds interesting. It, it, yeah, it's being published by a major McFarland, a major company. It's all about uh, the history of sort of contactism and and that kind of stuff. Um, very interesting guy, a very cool guy, but he wrote the introduction and, and, uh, the reason I asked him to do that was I didn't want a paranormalist like, you know, me or Greg or Nick to write an introduction. I want a historian who could 
place it in its proper context, that this is an important historical document that speaks to the time in which he was living. And here you have a very intelligent, thoughtful guy writing about that time. So it's a, it's a rare thing. So if people can only pick one of the two books up, I would recommend picking up The Post-Human Blues, Volume 1. Um, hopefully you buy both, but uh, Max, is it's a really cool book, and I was i was really happy to, um, and to be able to do it and to continue doing the ones that are going to come after it. Okay. Well, I'm glad we got a chance to talk about it, so. Yeah. So beyond, uh, there's also, there's going to be three, I think you said three, maybe four subsequent volumes of that book. Uh, Nick's got a book coming out. Uh, a few other folks do as well. What else, uh, what else do you have planned, uh, at the Red Star Empire? Well, yeah, that's the publishing wing. I actually, we're recording this interview on November 8th. I don't know when you'll have it available, but, um, in December. There you go. By the time you're listening to this, I will actually be on set. I start shooting, uh, my next feature film here in Nova Scotia, November 30th, uh, in through the first couple weeks in December. So, um, yeah, a film called Damnation, which uh, we have a, my British partners are um, distributing it and uh, executive producing it. And it's the lead and it's sort of the project that um, keeps me sort of creatively busy until I do a much larger feature film next year called Rubicon. Um, which they're also partners on. Nice. So, yeah, you know, I've moved away. I don't really – the only documentary that I'm still looking at doing uh, is Beyond Best Evidence. I I will do that. I do intend to do that. Tim is a part of it when I yes. finally get it off the ground, hopefully next and year. And for the folks who donated, we, we don't want them to think yes. that they're assholes or anything. We The money is safely in something, right? Uh, yeah. No, yes. And actually one of the perks – uh, for donating to the film, if you reached a certain level, was weirdly enough, you would get a copy of my as yet to be written book, the uh, the other side of truth. As it turns out, I finished the book before I finished the film. So <laughs> I, I will be sending out sometime before the end of the year because uh, I have a list of I think it was eighteen or nineteen people who donated, uh, maybe twenty. Uh, I have a list of those people. They'll be getting the dirty a dozen. Yeah, they'll be getting a copy of the book before they get a copy of the film. But the film will get made. Um, and having done these feature films or or doing these feature films will give me the resources I need to uh, – I'll be diverting some of the resources from my salary to doing that film. Right. Which it takes a long time to make a movie and a longer time to make a good one, so – it does, and it might, you know, I'll be buying into the Protestant work ethic and all that capitalistic stuff, because I definitely, you know, intend to get paid for doing these films, so. Excellent. So, yes. <laughs> so, yeah, that's what, uh, get the publishing company, get the, the films coming up, and uh, might even be getting back into the music industry uh, sometime in the not-too-distant future, so. Nice, nice. So finally, I found a place for my Ska album to be made. Oh yes, your ska album. Well, okay. Um, I'll I'll have you contact my assistant about that. Actually, a Timbinol ska album might be an interesting thing. I've left those days behind me. Oh, that's too bad. I know. Anyway, uh, on that ridiculous note, Paul, I think we this is the longest conversation of uh, of season seven here. But but your wordiness, your enjoyable wordiness, combined with my yearning for more answers uh, has really created quite the conversation. And, and I, honestly, I think uh, this is not including the baseball episodes, which are superfluous uh, bar talk conversations. I think this, uh, I think we've done two or three, three shows together uh, prior to this one discussing yes. uh, the world of the paranormal and whatnot. And I, I honestly, I'd say that this is the best one we've ever done. So I've enjoyed it tremendously. And uh, you know, 
it's been quite uh, quite a conversation, one I really uh, enjoyed quite a bit, and I, I think and I hope the listeners will enjoy it as well. So, Well, the best conversation we ever had was the one we had at the casino here in Halifax at 4.30 in the morning. But unfortunately, we weren't taping that, and we were really inebriated. So it's probably best that we yeah. don't release that one publicly. But Even on the Internet, two. that's unairable. Yeah, no, that would be unbearable, even, especially when those girls wandered by. But this is, this is number two with a bullet. This is the second best one with a bullet. So, yeah, yeah, this is, yeah. And, and, and I really did enjoy the book quite a bit. It's a, it's a combination of a, of personal anecdotes, a personal journey. There's great stories in there that, uh, we didn't really get the chance to, to, to really, uh, digest here on the program. But there, there's a lot of great stories in there that combine with some really deep thought, which is what we focused on here. Uh, tonight, so and and uh, we really just scratched the surface of it. In, in considering we got three hours of uh, deep conversation going here, and, and really I think we could have just kept going and going for quite some time. So I think that's I hope that's the feeling people will get when they pick up the other side of truth. That you know they they have thoughts uh, following reading it. So go out and get it, folks. Hope so. Like I said, all I want to do is ask questions and people yeah, encourage them to find their own answers. So in my own way, given my thesis, I'm, you know, the advanced non-human intelligence, you know, fulfilling the same function. We should all be asking questions and then everybody can find their own answers. So, yeah, thanks for having me on, Tim. It's always a pleasure. Uh, same here, buddy. That does it for this edition of BOA Audio Season 7. Big, big thanks to Paul Kimball for coming back on the show and giving us so much time. Hugely appreciated. Loved the conversation. If you want to find out more from Paul Kimball, check out his website, www.redstarfilmtv.com. Pretty simple, all one word. Redstarfilmtv.com. Check it out. Moving right along now, it's time for BOA Audio Listener Feedback, and we've got two emails here in the mailbag, so let's dig on in. The first one comes from Carl. No hometown listed here is what he has to say. As a fairly new listener of BOA, a lot of the older shows are still fresh in my mind, as I work my way through the archives. For example, I recently listened to Dr. Joy Pugh, predict that Prince William would be crowned in 2012 and become the Antichrist. What about doing a doomsday retrospective, now that we've survived the Mayan apocalypse, and examine the various predictions of past guests to see what has and hasn't come to fruition? Maybe some of them would be willing to participate and comment. Carl. Thank you for writing in, Carl. Much appreciated. I actually haven't followed up on Dr. Joy Pugh. I'd be interested to see what she has to say in the wake of 2012. And, however, though, I was thinking about your email here as I was reading it, and I can't recall too many folks who come on the show and make outright predictions. We don't really do psychics on the show. And even the conspiracy theorists and ufologists, most of the guests on the program really have shied away sort of from making any kind of definitive prediction, except for Dr. Joy Pugh. And I really can't say with 100% certainty that she said 2012 would be the big date, although it does sound familiar. Nonetheless, I would definitely be interested in doing a program like that uh, with some of these guests if we had a whole bunch of folks who made predictions. So, I don't know. And I'm inherently lazy, so I cannot go back and look to see 
who else we could put on this Doomsday retrospective. It's definitely something that might be the seed for a different evolution of that concept down the line, but I definitely like the idea, and I certainly want to check out Dr. Joy Pugh's work right now. So <laughs> literally, as I shut off the recorder here, taping the end cap, I'll be checking out Dr. Joy Pugh's website as this episode is uploading to see what she has had to say here in 2013. Our next email comes from Sharon Hill, editor of Doubtful News, and here's what she has to say. I heard on the year in review that you covered several stories that we also covered on Doubtful News, specifically the Baltic UFO and Mokele Mamembe expedition. I typically follow through on the stories to their ends if I can. You may be interested in these updates. And then there are a pair of links to updates on those stories. Followed by, I'm interested to know what you think of Delphal News as a science-based source of weird news. Thanks, Sharon Hill, editor, Delphal News. After I got this email, I checked out the links here that Sharon Hill provided and was sufficiently impressed that she has uh, followed through on these mysteries here. And then as I dug further into Delphal News, I was more and more impressed with what she had to say. I was like, this is an amazing website. And I actually was going to feature this email on the last edition of BOA Audio in the listener feedback portion of the program, but something crazy happened, folks. Something wild happened. I'm going to pull a lost move on you here now because I was so impressed with DelphalNews.com and Sharon Hill's work there at that website and looked further into her stuff and found out that she is a major player in the world of skepticism and the skeptic community, and I was completely blown away. I was stunned. And then it kind of dawned on me that we need to have a skeptic on the show sometime, and Sharon Hill is perfect for that role. So here's where I pull the lost on you folks. Next time on BOA Audio, our guest is Sharon Hill, the editor of Doubtful News. And we're going to delve into the world of skepticism and the ongoing battle between skeptics and the paranormal and try and figure out if we can find a bridge between the two camps. Sharon actually told me in the conversation, which we taped last night, that she writes to paranormal sites all the time and is constantly ignored by them. But as soon as I saw her email and checked out her website, I was like, we have got to get this lady on the show. This is tremendous. So just one instance of how listener feedback can actually turn into a whole new edition of the program. It's not just listeners who write in with guest suggestions. It's also researchers and writers who have something to say, and then I take a further look at their stuff, and I'm like, wow, we need to bring them on to Banal of America. And Once again, it's happened here with Sharon Hill. I'll talk a little bit more about it at the end of the program. I kind of just want to do a little twist here. <laughs> In listener feedback, do something a little bit different, pull a fast one on you by reading an email and then revealing that that person will be on the show. Those are the two emails here this week for listener feedback, but before we wrap up this segment, of course, it's time for an update on the BOA Facebook page. We have gotten stuck, folks. We're stuck at 898, and I think it is the promise of the shout-out at the end of the show. So in order to break this log jam, I think someone's afraid to be number 899. They're going to wait. There's people waiting it out. Or I'm just crazy paranoid. 
nonetheless, for the folks out there who don't want to be eight ninety nine because they want the shout out, I'll do the shout out for numbers eight ninety nine and nine hundred. So let's break this log jam. Let's get over the nine hundred mark, folks, and like Benal of America on Facebook. I posted there last week or so an article completely blew my mind. I want to mention it here at the end of the show that Stephen Hawking has now signed on to this think tank to research the potential for a robot apocalypse, the out-of-control robots theory that Stan Friedman decried on the holiday special continues onward, and now Stephen Hawking has joined up in this think tank. This is a true story. This is a real story that was in the newspaper or online, I guess you could say. I don't read the newspaper, but you know what I mean. And we link that up at the BOA Facebook page. So there's always some new and cool stuff there that you want to check out. So head on over to Benal of America on Facebook. And if you want to take part in future installments of BOA audio listener feedback, there are numerous ways to do so. You can write to boaaudio at hotmail.com or head on over to banalofamerica.com and click the contact button. If you want something a little more interactive, you can join up at the official BOA forum, the US of E.com, T-H-E-U-S-O-F-E.com. We like to call it BOA's Paranormal Playground, where we discuss the world of esoterica and pop culture. Additionally, I am on Facebook and Twitter, so just punch in Benal, B-I-N-N-A-L-L, and that way you'll find me on their search engines. Feel free to befriend me, follow me, or poke me. It's all good, and I'd be happy to have you as part of my online circle of friends. Any of those methods will put your correspondence into my hands to be featured on future installments of BOA Audio Listener Feedback. Up next, please allow me to thank the outstanding and esteemed BOA staff, Leslie, Chiron, Regan Lee, Joe V, Tina Senna, Richard Thomas, Marla Pena, Bruce Pretty, Tony Morrill, and our webmaster, Jeremy Boston. And now comes the time in the program where I take my hat off and pass it around to all the folks out there and ask you to make a donation to the Banal of America franchise. A lot of great folks stepped up to the plate in the last few days, and I really do appreciate that quite a bit. And just to tug at your heartstrings some, if you are listening to me on Saturday, January 26th, it's my birthday. Yep, it is my birthday. And I've produced this three-hour-plus program for all of you to enjoy. Consider it my bizarro birthday present to you. And if you'd like to return the favor, there's two ways you can do so. You can head on over to Banal of America and click the PayPal button. That'll take you to PayPal. They'll walk you through the process. It's safe, secure, and simple. But if you don't trust the Internet and you want to send a snail mail donation, you can do so by writing to Tim Banal, P.O. Box 232, Pinehurst, Mass. 01866. The complete address can be found at Benal of America under the PayPal button. And please allow me to remind you once again, if you send in a donation, please make it payable to Tim Benal and not Benal of America. 
and include a means of correspondence so I can reach out to you and thank you for your donation. As always, it bears repeating, no donation is too small, and all donations go towards Banal of America and BOA Audio to help keep the entire franchise up and running, freely available, and commercial-free for all of our great readers and listeners the world over. I've already pulled a lost move on you and previewed the next edition of the program. Once again, our guest will be Sharon Hill, editor of Doubtful News. You can find that at doubtfulnews.com. Really a fantastic website. If I went there and it was all skeptibunkers ripping on people in the paranormal, I would have been very disappointed and this all would not have happened. But I was so impressed with Sharon's ultimate desire to really get to the bottom of all this, regardless of what it all means, that I knew that she'd be perfect for Banal of America. And there's a whole funny story that will unfold on the program when you hear it. As I said, we taped the conversation last night, and in the interim between Sharon sending me that email and us taping the program, she had some interesting comments about Banal of America, which we'll unpack on the program. I think folks will find that amusing. And as I said, we'll try and find some areas where we overlap, points where there could be cooperation and really the potential to build a bridge between the skeptic and paranormal community. This is not your average skeptic show, folks. This is a banal of America skeptic show, and one I think you will really enjoy. Now, I was thinking of this as I was shifting the schedule around, because Sharon was not the originally planned guest for next week, but all this feels so timely that I wanted to put this together and out there for folks as soon as possible. We still have a tremendous edition of the program on tap for you following the Sharon Hill program. And I think it's perfect in a lot of ways to follow that episode because our guest will be, I'll reveal it now here for the hardcore BOA audio listeners who've tuned in and maybe sitting here saying, what's going on? Kimball was kind of skeptical about a lot of stuff. Sharon Hill is an out-and-out skeptic. But no, you're not turning toward the dark side. No, 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 my friends, because after the Sharon Hill edition of the program, our guest will be a pioneer in the world of paranormal research, the crypto hunter himself, John Rhodes. And John Rhodes does not do very many interviews, but made an exception for Banal of America. And if you're not familiar with him, you'll hear more about him at the end of the program next week. But he is the guy who popularized reptilians. He's the man who put reptilians on the map, and then so many other people in the world of esoterica picked up on reptilians and ran with it, and some of them made a lot of money on reptilians. John Rhodes is the guy who really lit the fuse which blew up into the reptilian phenomenon. So we're going to talk all about reptilians and how they fit into the paranormal milieu it is really one for the books and is, I think, a classic edition of the program. So believe me, my friends, we have not turned our back on our paranormal roots. We just keep adding to the bullia base of Esoterica here on BOA Audio. Stay tuned, my friends. 
And on that note, we close the book on this edition of the program. Big, big thanks once again to Paul Kimball for coming on the show. Thank you to Carl and Sharon for writing in on BOA Audio Listener Feedback. And enormous thanks to all you folks out there, the hardcore BOA Audio Listeners, the folks who have been listening here from Episode 1 to 721 or are listening for the first time ever. Thank you for your support of the program, and thank you for making BOA Audio a part of your esoteric audio playlist. Until next time, this is Tim Benall, thanking you for listening and signing off.